Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Mormon Stories Podcast. I'm your host, John DeLynn. It's October 20th, 2022. And today we are 25 or 26 episodes into uh, a really important, epic uh, Mormon Stories podcast series called LDS Discussions, where we examine Mormon church truth claims as neutrally and objectively and as thoughtfully and as dispassionately as we possibly can. Today, we are covering, we're in the middle of a series on Joseph Smith's polygamy, and today we are covering Joseph Smith's plural marriage proposals. We've done an introduction to Mormon polygamy. We've covered DNC 132, which was Joseph Smith's polygamy revelation, and today we're covering Joseph Smith's plural marriage proposals. I do want to just um, remind everyone that this entire series is based on the amazing work of our friend Mike at LDSDiscussions.com. He has written several essays on uh, various Mormon church truth claims. Today's episode is based on the essay that can be found at LDSDiscussions.com slash polygamy dash proposals. And also, I want to make sure that people know that that uh, all of these episodes can be found in the Mormon Stories podcast feeds both on the Apple Podcast app, on Spotify, and on YouTube, and the Mormon Stories Podcast channel. But uh, these episodes can also be found on Spotify. There's a dedicated Spotify uh, podcast for the LDS Discussions episodes specifically, where you can both listen to them and view them. Spotify allows video, believe it or not. We've got about, uh, you know, a thousand episodes, a thousand views or listens per episode now. So our Spotify presence with this podcast specifically is growing. And I also want to let you all know that if you just want to watch these in succession, you can go to our YouTube playlist on the Mormon Stories podcast channel, and you can watch these episodes in succession. Uh, today, we are excited to have back with us again, Mike from LDS Discussions. Hey, Mike. Hey, how's it going, everybody? It's great to have you. It's good to be back. <laughs> we got you a new microphone. I hope people like it. Yeah, I hope I sound better. I know when I listen to them, sometimes I feel like I'm extra tinny, so I'm hoping this is a little bit better. Yeah, and we're going to get you even a, a better mic stand. So anyway, thanks for joining us. We're so glad to have you. Thanks, everyone. And we're super excited to have back for a second time, Alicia Lee. Hey, Alicia. How's it going? <laughs> Great. You, your your appearance on the DNC 132 episode was really valuable, and we're just so thrilled to have you back because Yep. Wouldn't it be lame to have a discussion about polygamy and have only men talking about it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> she says politely. Uh, really quickly, Alicia, let's give you a chance. If you want to introduce yourself and also you may have some starting thoughts you want to share, let's turn the mic over to you. Thanks, John. Um, yeah, so I'm Alicia Faith Unraveled on TikTok. I'm actually working on a polygamy series on TikTok. It's kind of intermittent. So um, anyway, whenever I feel inspired to talk about something, one of the stories, I really feel like it's valuable to give these women a voice. So I love talking about it on my TikTok channel. Um, so if you want to check that out. But in regard to today's episode, I just a little framework that I wanted to share when I was preparing for this episode I just kept thinking, you know, as a seventh generation Mormon myself, coming from pioneer stock, having been an active believer for 40 years of my life, I am fascinated with Mormon history. And um, as I started to deconstruct a few years ago, I recognized that many of the themes that we see in these formative years of the church are still playing out today. 
And the one that we're going to see a lot of today during today's episode is this idea of sacrificing during this lifetime for the sake of the eternities, um, doing things that the saints did things that they wouldn't probably ordinarily do if it weren't for their indoctrination. Um, so we see repeatedly in these teachings, it's kind of sequential for me, the way that I see it. It's like, first of all, they have to see this lifetime as this very temporary time, this small speck on the spectrum of eternity. Okay, so that's the first part of the indoctrination. The second part is that the decisions that you make during this very temporary time are going to influence your whole eternity. They're going to dictate what the whole rest of your eternity looks like. And then the part three is you have a prophet and your prophet is your lifeline who's going to tell you exactly what to do during this very short period of time on the earth um, so that you don't have to suffer through the eternities. So when I... So when people start to see through this through this lens, I think it becomes very easy to influence their decisions. I want to use the word manipulate, but I'm just going to say influence their decisions. Um, because when we see the prophet as our lifeline, then what we're told to do, it doesn't have to make sense. It doesn't have to feel right. We just have to do it in the name of obedience. And I would argue that this dynamic that we see early in the church is still sort of playing out today for members of the church. At least I feel that way as that's, that was part of my lived experience as a member of the church. So I think it'll be interesting to look at these events in church history and see how they are relevant today. Beautiful. That's a great introduction. Mike, do you want to yeah. add anything to what Alicia said? No, I think that is for me, one of those things you think about is like it, we talked about it in the first few episodes and we'll talk about it in the next couple polygamy ones is that as, as Alicia said, when you have someone that you trust as a prophet of God, it allows them to become the middleman between you and your eternal promises. And so that allows, um, in this case, Joseph Smith to circumvent our own moral compass because our moral compass turns, it stops being a moral compass and it starts being follow the prophet. And I think that is why you see so many offshoots today who are doing things like this um, because they learned it from Joseph Smith. They learned from early history and so as Alicia said, this stuff impacts today, not just with polygamy, but with obedience, with not questioning leadership with, you know, we, we, we've, we've shown videos before on here and, and I've had them on, on like Twitter and stuff that um, there was a women's conference from like two years ago where they say you never, ever question the, the priesthood holding men. And it, it all comes down to this. And so as we look at, at these um, events in history, they are fascinating, but we, we need to learn from them. And I think in a lot of ways, we're often told to kind of push them aside, you know, put them on the shelf. Um, and, and you can't do that because you can't understand the present if you don't understand the past. I love it. Yeah, it wasn't until I was in my 40s where I started learning about consent uh, when I was getting my PhD in psychology and we had to counsel assault victims and rape victims. And, you know, there's a lot of drinking on campus. And so there are uh, always concerns about sexual health and sexual safety. And you you learn that there are certain things uh, that certain dynamics to any type of sexual relationship that sort of invalidate the idea of two consenting adults. And of course, underage children cannot consent uh, because they're not even adults yet. So there's no such thing as an adult having consensual sex with, with a minor. Yep. Uh, you can't have drunk consent. You can't be drunk and consent. There's no such thing as drunk consent. There's no such thing as consent when you're asleep. 
Uh, and, and so the, the idea is, is that, you know, if you're, if you're trying to find out is Joseph Smith's polygamy righteous, is it of God? And we have Patrick Mason, the church's top believing, um, scholar calling Joseph Smith's polygamy. He, he basically said it looks a lot like sin, but, but if you're going to try and analyze whether Joseph Smith's polygamy is of God, then you have to wonder, was it consensual? If he's in such a position of power, he's viewed as God's one true servant. Yeah. If he's telling people their salvation depends on it, if it's 14-year-old girls, if he's if he's mayor and you know, commander of the legion, and he's telling people they've got 24 hours or they and their families all lose their salvation, is that a problem? So that's good. That's gonna what, what we're gonna be talking about today. Yep. And so, Mike, let's jump into the first slide. Yeah. And one thing I'll add to your comment is just when you hear the word consent all the time in, in the Mormon church, when I was a member, or I mean, I'm still a member, but when I was a believing member, consent was always free agency. So, you know, it wasn't so much that, you know, you don't talk about consent, but you always talk about you have free agency. And so when you watch this episode and you listen to these accounts, you have to ask yourself, do these women really have free agency in the church? Um, or is that being taken away? And if, if that's the case, that's another thing we have to address um, because of the fact that we are always told we have free agency, but in a lot of ways, this short circuits that. And so just, it's just piggybacking off of not just consent, but within Mormonism, free agency is a big deal. And I would argue you can't have free agency under these circumstances, which we'll obviously get into. All right. So our first slide is a recap. Yeah. So just for those who have uh, watched the first two polygamy episodes um, or those who haven't, this is episode three out of five on our polygamy uh, kind of mini series within the larger series. And so in our previous two episodes, we covered uh, the timeline of Joseph Smith's polygamy and kind of how that impacted the production of DNC 132, because that does not come until 1843. And most of these, I think all of these proposals come before that. Um, and then we talk about how in the church, they, they have the heading for DNC 132 talks about how Joseph Smith received this revelation as early as 1831. We talked about how that revelation was actually about taking the the women uh, in the Native American reservations as wives and concubines to make their children whiter, uh, more white and delightsome is the actual wording. Um, it has nothing to do with DNC 132. Uh, we talked about how Joseph Smith produced the entirety of DNC 132 in one sitting without even using the peep slash shear stone because Hiram Smith requested Joseph Smith to use it, believing that's how he got his revelations. Joseph said no. He riffed off uh, with the 3,200 word uh, revelation in one sitting without any help, which I think says a lot about his ability to dictate text, um, as we talked about with the composition of the Book of Mormon. And then in our last episode, we talked about the wording of DNC 132 and all of the implications that that revelation has for believing members today, uh, mixed faith marriages, and how Joseph Smith broke pretty much all of the specific rules that he set forth within DNC 132. Um, we'll talk a little bit about that as we go through these proposals as well, kind of um, going back to, you know, and this is, an, you know, another way where his own revelation, which is going to be written after these proposals, is already broken because of w the practices he used in implementing polygamy. Excellent. Okay. Uh, should we go to the next slide? Yeah. And so what we want to talk about in this third episode is to look at how Joseph Smith actually implemented polygamy and to compare it both to DNC 132 and how the church portrays it today, because both of those are very important because DNC 132 obviously is the revelation that we have canonized and it is one that is still doctrine. And then we have to look at how the church portrays it today, because that's important as to, in my opinion, um, kind of the honesty 
of how polygamy is portrayed by the church, not just with how Joseph Smith implemented it, but what the what the um, implications are for today. And for this episode, we want to point out the patterns in Joseph Smith's proposals um, that I think are important to evaluating Joseph Smith as a prophet of God. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at some of the proposals where we have um, accounts from those who are involved in them uh, to see how those stack up against the church's narratives. We are not trying to find the most salacious details. Um, we're not trying to give shock value here. We're trying to find the accounts where we have solid um, journal entries or accounts of, of what happened during these proposals because a lot of these we just don't have them for. So what we're trying to do is is, is focus on what we do have. I'm not trying to find the most salacious details where, that I've been trying to do that this entire series we've been doing is, is to look at what's the most solid and, and go from there. And so these are going to make uh, a lot of believing members uncomfortable. Um, but at the same time, this is this is history. And so we need to be able to talk about these, whether whatever you do with it after the fact is is up to you. But this is um, something we, we have to address and look at the implications of these accounts. Okay. All right. So the next yeah. slide is marrying girls that live in Joseph Smith's home. Yeah. So before we get to the accounts, I want to cover a few of the patterns that I have found and others have found in Joseph Smith's proposals. And one of them is that Joseph Smith often proposes to girls and, and young women who he has living in his household first. And so um, this is a common thread and it puts women in a very awkward position because they are now being housed with the man they believe is a prophet of God. And then they are being asked to marry him in, in secret polygamous marriages. I'm hiding it from Emma in the process, who's also in the house. And you know, we, we talked about this in our first episode. This is how um, he had the relationship with Fanny um, Alger. And I, I don't believe that was a marriage, as we talked about in that episode. But this is an area where Joseph Smith had her living in his household. She believed he was a prophet. And then they have this relationship. And um, this allows uh, Joseph Smith to use the time while they're living in the household to feel out the situation, to slowly condition them to be ready for this proposal. And I, I realize that that sounds very devious to put it that way. But that's exactly what you would do if you're seeking to take these young women as your polygamous brides, knowing that they believe you're a prophet of God and will recoil at the proposal initially. And so I want to just state off right off the bat that an apologetic argument is that they would were free to reject his proposal to find another place to live. Um, but the point I want to make is that Joseph Smith is putting him in a position where he holds both their uh, both his authority as a self-proclaimed prophet and his authority as a person housing these women. Uh, when making these proposals over them. And so, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, this puts a dent in this idea of free agency because you're seriously diminishing a person's ability to choose freely when you are in a position where, where someone you view as a prophet and the person who's housing you is asking you to do something that you already know is is just unbelievably immoral and you know dishonest. You're shaking. You're nodding your head, Alicia. Why? Yeah. Oh, well, it just seems so obvious, but I don't know why it took me 40 years to see that. Um, but I think that just viewing all of the components is super important. And the really great thing is that we don't have to dig into anti-Mormon literature to find this stuff. Todd Compton's done great work. The Hales have done wonderful work. They have a faithful perspective. But the word that you used is salacious. I mean, that's th those details are in those faithful sources. You don't yep. have to. You have to. You don't have to wander. No. <laughs> and and Mike, I obviously Fanny Alger Joseph's first known affair slash by the church's claim polygamous wife we've we've talked about that that was 1833ish to 1835ish are there other 
uh, are, are we going to talk about the other women that were also uh, living in the home? Will we? Be yes. Talking yeah. Yeah. So is, I'm Just trying to cover this. So yeah, I want to cover these now so that as we go through the accounts, I can it. say as we we're talking about. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So the next the next uh, pillar or pattern is making great promises in exchange for marriage. Yeah, and this is one where um, actually, can you go back uh, to? Yeah, you skipped two slides. Oh, sorry. No, no, that's okay. So um, this okay, one here is, we are. So the next one is using older wives to recruit younger ones. Yeah, and so this is one of the ones. Uh, one of the apologetics I often hear was that Joseph Smith could not have been marrying women just for sex, uh, because he did marry some older wives that we don't have any record of him having sexual relations with, and and that's obviously a, a true statement. Uh, but what I want to state up front is I, I we've said this in the earlier episodes. I don't believe every polygamous marriage was strictly for sex. I think there were a lot of factors, whether it was authority and power. Um, there is, you know, some of these accounts where Joseph Smith uh, almost brings these families into polygamy almost to make them complicit. We talked about the quote um, that he was talking about in 1841, which is, if you don't accuse me, I won't accuse you. Uh, there are a lot of reasons why you would bring families into this polygamous system. And so this is a new system of marriage, and it's going to lead to him marrying women for different reasons. But with that being said, there are um, at least two of the older wives that we know were used to recruit the younger wives for him. So they would talk to the women. They would try to get a feel for what they already had heard in the rumor mill. They would try to soften up their beliefs about it. And so this gives Joseph Smith a middle, like a middle woman, I guess in this case, to have plausible deniability if the proposal is not received well. And also allows Joseph Smith to use somebody who's already in polygamy to sell those young women on how righteous the principle is once you accept it. It's almost like an MLM with polygamy, where you've got the people that are recruiting into the system. And um, we'll highlight how Joseph Smith was using these older plural wives to recruit younger women today. And we'll also talk about this in our episode, the next episode on the happiness letter, because it, that's going to be another time where Joseph Smith is going to use um, one of his polygamous wives to recruit others. And so um, it just goes against that idea that, well, he married some older women, so clearly it wasn't about sex. It's like, well, sometimes those older women were actually helping him to find younger wives. And, and that's important to note Again, as uncomfortable as it might be, this is what happened. Yeah, and and I'm the bell's already ringing for me. This idea of being able to say, "Well, polygamy is not about sex." Look, I married a couple old women, like that. That could also very much be used as a cover, right? Yeah, and, and there are reasons. Like, I believe he married his brother's um, widow, and he may have had sex with her. That that is that's gonna be in the happiness letter a bit, but. When the happiness letter happens, there's this rumor that he's having some sort of relationship with his brother's widow, and he does ultimately marry her as a plural wife. So then you would have to say, well, there's smoke there that they're having a relationship. So maybe they did. So just because, I mean, Joseph Smith, remember, he's in his upper 30s at this point. So, you know, he's going to marry women who are in their 30s and their 40s. There's no reason he wouldn't have sex with them. I'm just saying that that apologetic, I think he did marry like a one or two that were in their 50s. Well, yeah, but some of the, these older women were being used. And when I say older, I don't mean like they're ancient. I mean older as opposed to not the teenagers he's more known for marrying. It's also kind of ages to think that a, a 50-year-old or 60-year-old wouldn't be having sex or even wouldn't yeah. be attractive. Like my, my, my wife and I are in our 50s and, you know, so, so it's kind of ages to think that somehow – he wouldn't be having sex with a 50 or 60 year old too, right? Yeah. And, and that's why I'm trying to be careful here because that's not really what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to say is that that's an apologetic. We'll say, right. well, he wasn't just marrying the teenagers. He was marrying these, these women who are in their thirties, forties, fifties. It's like, well, yeah, but we don't have accounts for every woman. It's not like the women were like, we didn't have sex. Some of them will say it was only for time or it was only for eternity. 
but we also have women that are playing a role in the polygamous system and almost working for Joseph Smith. And that is really something that I did not know until a couple of years ago. When you see that, you're like, this is, this is something that if you saw any other religious leader doing, you'd be like, oh my goodness, this is horrific. But when it's Joseph Smith, you go, oh, well, his is right. from God. It's like, you know, and that's why we have to look at all of these together and try to get a bigger picture. Alicia, quick comment. Just, I think it's really helpful to be able to view things through different lenses. So to take off that lens of indoctrination and just view it through a practical lens and seeing all these details, I think is helpful. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. And, and, and if you want to pull I'll just say, if you want to pull that into a, a modern um, analogy or, or parallel, look at what uh, Nexium, you know, we had the, the, the Nexium cult. Um, where they had uh, Allison Mack recruiting women um, to be basically like sex slaves for the guy. I can't remember his name now. Um, and obviously, there's a whole mini series on HBO about that. But you know, this this is a pra- this is something that is done in high demand religions and in in some of these cults like Nexium, where they're using these women, and the women are using this opportunity to recruit other women to elevate their own status. Because the more you can make yourself important. Uh, the more important you become to Joseph Smith and all that. So, so there are uh, a lot of, you know, kind of messy things that happen within this, but, you know, even in the modern day, uh, I think that happened what like three or four years ago, we have a system where women are out there recruiting other women to bring into a system of, of, that wasn't polygamy so much as just, you know, a sexual cult, but yeah. Not to mention the FLDS church as well. Exactly. I mean, you're going to have it there too. So, I mean, it's just, it's, it's something you see in other places and to what Alicia was saying if you see that there and you say that is horrific and you know, that's wrong, it's really hard then to go back to Joseph Smith. Like, well, but his was righteous. And I guess that's the point I'm trying to make through these episodes of like, you have to view this through the lens of how would I evaluate this? If I was not raised in the church and already conditioned to, to accept it. Totally. Okay. The next pattern that you're laying out or the next pillar of his pattern is proposing to girls that were in vulnerable situations. Yeah. And this one is one that is really troubling um, because what we see in a lot of these proposals, especially to the young girls, is that he's going to ask them to marry him after they believed he was a prophet and a lot of them after they've gone through a situation that makes them vulnerable. So um, in a few of these cases, we have um, instances where, excuse me, Joseph Smith proposes to them after they lose a parent. And they're living in the Smith household. They have a parent that died. And, you know, I, one of the things I always thought of is, is you hear um, how missionaries are always taught that the, the most likely people to join the church are the people that have gone through loss because they're more open to religion. And it just also reminds me of the fact that if you're Joseph Smith and you're trying to find people who you think will be more um, likely to, to jump into your um, – con- to, you know, accept your proposal, that people who have gone through a lot of tragedy or vulnerable – um, I think are, are going to be more open to, to doing that. And so we'll note this as we go with these proposals, but Joseph Smith is the one selecting these women. And, and so he's selecting them. And, and we can't obviously say what the reasons are, so we can't get into his head. But when you look at the, the kind of the patterns and the threads in these proposals, it does seem that he's trying to pick people that have gone through great loss that maybe either don't have the willpower to reject him or are just, you know, going through so much that they're trying to find that spiritual connection that he's offering them in many of these cases. And it, this one, as we go through these accounts, this one's one where it just, to me, the, it, this isn't like a red flag. This is like a red banner on a stadium um, that, you know, if you saw it with anyone else, you just lose your mind. So that's yeah, a tough I, one. I know we're going to be hearing about uh, orphans and yeah. I know we're going to be hearing about women whose husbands were in other countries who were living alone. Alicia, anything you wanted to add to this before yeah. we talk? I think that was a great summary. I'm excited to jump in today. 
Lots okay. to look at. Lots to look at. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the next pattern uh, that we're going to be looking for is making great promises in exchange for marriage. Yeah. And so we've talked about this in the DNC 132 episode, but you know, Joseph Smith uses polygamy to promise these great eternal blessings for those who accept his proposals while making grave threats to those who refuse him. And we covered that within the wording of DNC 132. We're going to cover that a lot in the happiness letter episode because he writes those same ideas there. Um, and we'll highlight that in these episodes as well. Um, but the, the, the thing that Joseph Smith is doing is it's almost like you're um, a salesperson trying to close a deal. And so he's offering these women a direct path to exaltation if they accept his proposal. And in some cases, especially when there is that initial um, you know, re 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 uh, refusal, he'll offer like the entire family exaltation if they give their daughter to become his wife. Or if, if a woman marries, he'll promise that his whole their ho her whole family will be taken through to, to the celestial kingdom. And this is, again, we've talked about this. I mean, I've, I've mentioned this a lot because it starts to me with treasure digging, which is this is where Joseph Smith can make whatever promise he wants because he never has to deliver it. He can get these women to keep digging and paying him to dig by marrying him and, and whatever because he can now promise. He doesn't have to promise them a treasure he's going to find in the ground. He's promising them eternal promises that he knows he never has to deliver. And you're going to see this in these accounts. I'm glad you mentioned threats as well because it, it wasn't just threats. It wasn't just promises. It was also Yeah, it wasn't. Threats, yeah, yeah, I mean, there are promises and then there's sweats if you don't do it. So you're putting these women in a horrific situation. Okay, is the angel with the drawn sword part of a pattern? So the angel with the drawn sword is an interesting one because we have multiple accounts where he used it and um, some of the women we, we talked about today. And this is okay. one um, where this is Joseph Smith, where he's using pressure to coerce young women to accept his proposals um, by telling them, um, that an angel with a drawn sword is going to kill him if they don't accept. And so this is from the church's essay. And it says, when God commands a difficult task, he sometimes sends additional messengers to encourage his people to obey. Consistent with this pattern, Joseph told associates that an angel appeared to him three times between 1834 and 1842 and commanded him to proceed with plural marriage when he hesitated to move forward. During the third and final appearance, the angel came with a drawn sword, threatening Joseph with destruction unless he went forward and obeyed the commandment fully. And so... You know, the first thing I want to point out again is that Joseph's using the very folk magic power of three in the story, which we hear over and over. It's always on the third time that, you know, things happen, um, which we saw with the treasure digging, the gold plates, the lost 116 pages. And it's a very magical practice. Um, we see it in your Christmas character, Christmas carol. You have three visitations, all that stuff. And so let's we'll go to the next slide real quick. We can kind of finish this little. It's almost, yeah, it's almost, I'm just going to say, and we'll get into it, but it's yeah, almost it's the trait of an abusive partner. Uh, or someone who's borderline, it, it, it's it's a it's a cousin of I'm going to hurt myself if you don't do what I want you to do, which yeah. is it's it's even a little bit more demented. God's going to hurt me if you don't do what I want you to do or what yep. I'm telling you God wants you to do. Right? Yeah. It it can be viewed as very coercive, and and we'll talk about this. But but like if God has the ability to send angels with flaming swords. There are so many things he should be doing that for then and now, including child rape, murder, uh, you know, uh, genocide. Like, if God has that power, why why is he using it to make young teenage girls have sex with his prophet, and not with all the real horrors of of the of the earth? Yeah. Or more to that point, um, why didn't he go to Zina Huntington and say? And have it send an angel to her and say, hey, don't marry Henry because you are actually given to Joseph and Joseph's going to come and talk to you about it. And then Joseph comes and talks about it. And she says, you know what? An angel just confirmed it. Let's go. 
but instead it's always right. after they reject him. And so it to really Joseph makes and not to yeah, the women, right? Yeah. So it, it makes God seem like kind of a, you know, the Mormon version of God is kind of a, a bad manager because the Mormon version of God goes through all these extra steps that are contradicted by evidence, contradicted by everything. When the Mormon version of God could just as easily go to these women and say, Hey, um, I'm, I'm going to kill Joseph Smith if you don't marry him, but I'm telling you this so that you know it's legitimate. Instead of having Joseph Smith go after they re- reject him and say, I know you rejected me, but here's the problem. I'm going to die if you don't marry and have sex with me or at least marry me. And so it yeah. it takes away free agency. It takes away consent. It, and it also makes the Mormon version of God look like a pretty terrible person. And I realize how offensive that sounds, but if if I'm a parent, and I have a kid, I'm not going to go to someone else and say, I'm going to kill you unless you can convince my, my kid to do this. I'm going to go to the kid and be like, hey, this is what you need yeah, to do. Yeah, it's yeah. just, it's yeah, yeah. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, it's a problem. Alicia, do you have a quick comment on Angel and the Drawn Sword? Yeah, I mean, if we just remove that lens of indoctrination, I think that's a really good point, Mike. And just view the fact that there are so many factors here. And it's so easy when we look at church history through that faithful lens to just look at them as isolated events. You know, you've got the angel with the sword and these threats, but you don't really get the full picture until you really conceptualize the fact that these girls, many of which are orphaned or one parent dies, the other one is sent off by prophet orders. They're living in the prophet's home. Everyone in their environment is also indoctrinated. And now they're faced with this threat that if they don't make the right decision, their prophet, who is literally their gatekeeper, uh, is going to be destroyed. So to call it free agency, like I just think is so unimaginable. Once you get the whole picture, you really have to see, you really have to see it all together you know, to get the picture of what's really going on here. So to call it free agency, I just think is really a stretch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. And, 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 I, and I guess Mike, a cousin to the angel with the drawn sword is this idea of Joseph Smith as the reluctant polygamist. Yeah. And so just to kind of cap off that apart from the gospel topics essay, because what the church wants to do in the essay is to make Joseph Smith the victim. So they paint him as this reluctant victim who is fighting God. He was fighting God about polygamy by ignoring him. Think, there's an account where Joseph was kind of saying he was trying to trick, basically deceive God by making him think he was doing it. I mean, it's just, it's nonsensical. So um, what they do is they, the church says, look, God, Joseph was fighting this so hard because he knew how bad it was that God had to send an angel with a drawn sword to take his life if he didn't obey the commandment fully. I put commandment fully in quotes because that's part of the story, which to me means sex. Um, and so you got to remember that the commandments to raise up seed, which means sexual relations. So Joseph Smith certainly engaged in sexual relations with his polygamous wives, uh, but he never raised up any seed that we have confirmation for, which is an interesting data point. Um, But the problem is Joseph Smith is telling these young women who revere him as a prophet of God, that if they do not marry and have sex with him, then an angel will kill him. And so Joseph Smith could have gone and found another girl to marry. He, you know, he could have fulfilled the angel's commandment by just going to another girl who actually wanted to marry him. But instead, he continues continues to insist to these specific young women that if they don't do it, Joseph will be the real victim of their refusal to accept this commandment of God that was given to Joseph Smith on their behalf. And so um, it's just, again, pointing out that Joseph invokes this story when he's rejected by these women, uh, which is a way to circumvent their free agency. And as Alicia said, what would you say if you were given the story and it was for Warren Jeffs or David Koresh or the owner of a of really powerful business that you have these men of authority telling these women that I guarantee you 
the overwhelming majority, if not every person, would say that person belongs in jail. And yet when you say it's Joseph Smith, they say, well, if you really think about it through a different lens. And I think that to me is why we need to look at these accounts and say, let's look at it through the lens of history and not through the lens of how we were raised to look at the history. Yeah, when I when I hear Mormon polygamy apologetics, they often mention Brigham Young and the quote that when I learned about polygamy, I never desired yeah. the grave more than than when than when I was first taught the doctrine of polygamy. And then Brigham Young goes on to marry over fifty women. Yeah, I don't think he was reluctant for very long. Uh, no, uh, Alicia, anything you want to say about reluctant polygamy? Yeah, I mean, this is just it. This is when my lens cracked, my my faithful lens cracked when I realized I don't think that God said that. I don't think God commanded Joseph Smith to do it. It was the first time for whatever reason that I just saw it differently and I realized I don't think God commanded him to do this. In every case, he's blaming God in every case. And so once that switches, then it just makes you kind of start to deconstruct the whole thing because you're then you start looking at pre, the priesthood restoration and you start to look at the first vision and you start to look at everything and it all starts to fall apart with really just this section on polygamy. It's so huge. Do you believe that God actually commanded Joseph Smith to do this? Yeah. 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 It's a problem. Um, so uh, the next the next slide is going to be Lucy Walker's. Proposal. So we're going to start getting into the women. And and yep. before we do that, I'm just going to make a couple plugs. In our show notes, we try and include good links. I want to make a plug for Todd Compton's book, In Sacred Loneliness, where he spends a chapter on each of Joseph Smith's plural wives. Uh, that is the work uh, of scholarship on Joseph Smith's wives. I also want to make a plug for my Mormon Stories interview with Todd Compton, which I did very, very early on with Mormon Stories. And of course, Lindsay Hanson Park has an amazing series called Year of Polygamy, where she does a podcast episode for each of Joseph Smith's plural wives. And Todd Compton is coming to Salt Lake City this week at Benchmark Books. And this episode may be aired after uh, this week, so you won't <laughs> be able to see it. But Todd Compton and Signature Books, I believe, are releasing a book about the sources for yep. Todd Compton's book in Sacred Loneliness. So uh, I just want to make sure listeners and viewers have all that, that they can d dive and dig into this if they want. So is it time to talk about Lucy Lucy Walker? Yeah. So now we get into the accounts. And, and so um, Lucy Walker is one uh, that for me, uh, the first, this was one of the first accounts I heard of, and it was from a podcast that Bill Real had done for uh, Mormon Discussions. And he did it in a way, uh, kind of like Lindsay Hanson Park does, where he just kind of goes through the account and the implications without kind of being too over the top. And I thought it was horrific to listen to. And so Lucy Walker joined the church in 1835. Um, she was living in Nauvoo by 1841. Um, on January 15th, 1842, Lucy uh, Lucy's mother passed away um, and she had nine siblings. So her and her nine siblings no longer had a mom. And this is from Lucy herself. She says, 10 motherless children and such a mother the youngest, not yet two years old. What were we to do? My father's health seemed to give way under this heavy affliction. The prophet came to our rescue. He said, if you remain here, brother Walker, you will soon follow your wife. You must have a change of scene, a change of climate. You have such a, you have just such a family as I could love. My house shall be their house. I will adopt them as my own for the present. I would advise you to sell your effects, place the little ones with some kind friends and the four eldest shall come to my house and be received with and treated as my own children and if I find the others are not content or not treated right, I will bring them home and keep them until you return. So to be clear, following the death of, of Lucy's mother, 
Joseph is going to send um, the remaining parent, the dad, off on a mission, take the four eldest children into the home to live with him, and then the six younger ones to live elsewhere. And, and so Lucy herself says, 10 motherless children. Joseph Smith immediately sends the father off and introduces Lucy to other people as an adoptive daughter. Um, all right. So, so Alicia, you get to opine yeah. about how that, how that doesn't feel right for you. <laughs> okay. So it's interesting because as I was reading about this, just in pre preparation for today, I kept thinking about this quote from, um, therapist Erin Rackham. She has, um, she's, uh, got her PhD in psychology. She has a TikTok account and uh, she makes a lot of great post-Mormon content. And when the AP article by Michael Resendez came out, she posed this question to believers. She asked the question, is there an ethical line for you? Like, do, does a line exist? And if so, where is that? And it's interesting because that kept coming up in my mind as I was reading through this story of Lucy Walker and these other young girls um, you know, the faithful perspective is that Joseph Smith, you know, he was human. He made mistakes. So I guess that's where I would pose this question from Dr. Rackham. Where is the line? At what point do we stop seeing Joseph Smith as a prophet of God and start seeing his behavior as consistent with that of a predator? Kind of a tough question to ask yourself, but is there an ethical line? I think it's a great question to ask. And it's relevant when it comes to the history and it's relevant, I would argue, today. Yeah. Okay. 100 percent. all right next slide mike yeah okay and, and so yeah so the first slide kind of sets up the the situation lucy's in and so this is going to be in the same year after joseph smith sends her father away lucy walker is 16 years old and she says the following in the year 1842 remember this is before dnc 132 president joseph smith saw an interview with me and said i have a message for you i have been commanded of god to take another wife and you are the woman my astonishment knew no bounds. This announcement was indeed a thunderbolt to me. He asked if I believed him to be a prophet of God. Most assuredly, I do. I replied, he fully explained to me the principle of plural or celestial marriage. He said this principle was again to be restored for the benefit of the human family, that it would prove an everlasting blessing to my father's house and form a chain that could never be broken, worlds without end. What have you to say? He asked. Nothing. How could I speak or what could I say? He said, if you will pray sincerely for light and understanding in relation thereto, you, will, you shall receive a testimony of the correctness of this principle. I thought I prayed sincerely, but was so unwilling to consider the matter favorably that I fear I did not ask in faith for light. Gross darkness instead of light took possession of my mind. I was tempted and tortured beyond endurance until life was not desirable. Oh, that the grave would kindly receive me, that I might rest on the bosom of my dear mother. What should I be chosen from among thy daughters, father? I am only a child in years and experience. No mother to counsel. She died. No father near to tell me what to do in this trying hour. He was sent by Joseph on a mission. Oh, let this bitter cup pass. And thus I prayed in the agony of my soul. The prophet discerned my sorrow. He saw unhappy I was and saw an opportunity of again speaking to me on this subject and said, although I cannot under existing circumstances acknowledge you as my wife, the time is near when we will go beyond the Rocky Mountains and then you will be acknowledged and honored as my wife. He also said, this principle will yet be believed in and practiced by the righteous. I have no flattering words to offer. It is a commandment of God to you. I will give you until tomorrow to decide this matter. If you reject this message, the gate will be closed forever against you. Hmm. Alicia? 
Uh, I just think we are so lucky to have the journal entries of these young girls. I was very emotional last night reading these stories. And I just think that anyone who is invested in this religion, whether you are a believing member, really needs to take the time to read these journal entries and Lucy and Helen in particular. It's very compelling. What is it about this story? And it's going to be obvious, but I would just like to hear it explicitly. What is it about this story that's disturbing to you? Well, I think I have some personal connection to this because my grandfather um, was FLDS. Um, so it's very personal to me. Um, I don't know. I just, I think about this young girl and she just really had no recourse. Uh, she's just in this situation where she just really... Um, I don't know, as if the faithful perspective was that Joseph was doing the Lord's work. And I guess now I just view it as coercion. And, you know, she's a young girl. A lot of people don't start viewing this stuff until they get into their 40s. And I wonder if it's because most of us have teenage children when we're in our 40s. And we really just start to view it differently because you start to look at your own children and think, what if my child was in this situation? What if this was my my sister? Or in my case, I think about my mom, you know, when she was a young girl. and um, and I just, yeah, it just makes me very emotional to think about. So the prophet's in his, the prophet is a, supposed to be God's one true prophet on the earth. He's in his thirties. He's mayor of Nauvoo probably. Uh, and, and he's, you know, the, the, the dad of a 16 year old is away and he's propositioning a 16 year old and saying, you got to do it immediately. And if you don't, it's going to be closed forever. Yeah. Uh, you know, threatening gross darkness, uh, sort of threats. Yeah, he's 36 or 37 here, and she's yeah. 16. And yeah. I think it's also important to note that this wasn't that long ago. It's just interesting because I, I think we don't give enough credit to the fact that 200 years is not a very long period of time. And the common age for marriage back then is not that different than it is today. So we think of it as like, really old times and, you know, uh, but, it, but it wasn't, it wasn't that different than it is today. And it really wasn't that long ago. These are modern times. And um, so I think that's also important to look at and yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and what the church's main apologetic and we'll probably cover this is always going to be, well, a lot of these women in their later years said they loved polygamy and said that they, they're glad they did it or that they still believed in it. But that's true for all the women Warren Jeffs, pretty much all the all the women Warren Jeffs ever married, pretty much all the women in polygamous yeah. marriages in the FLDS church. Like just because polygamous women later or during their lives bear testimony to the truthfulness of polygamy or even the divine nature of polygamy or even that they enjoyed it. Many of Keith Raniere's wives still say they believe he was divine. That's not that's not evidence. That's not yeah. a witness truthfulness. No. So. And, and that is always going to be that, that thing where it's like, okay, well, if you want to say, well, they had an experience, you can't question it. Then you then have to say, well, what about the experiences of everyone else in the offshoots today? Because we have a video that's a uh, very common. Maybe we'll play it in the, our last episode. Um, and she's on an offshoot and she's giving her testimony. She's in a testimony, testimony meeting. And she somehow how she was a, a teenager, a high schooler or something. Now she's a plural wife and she's struggling. And that she knows it's from God. I mean, you can't discount that if you want to privilege Joseph Smith's. And I think that's where you get down the slippery slope of like uh, Alicia said, 
where is that ethical line? Because you cannot just apply one line to Joseph Smith and right. another line to the to what yeah. as Russell Nelson would call the world. You know, it doesn't work. And one last point I'll make is um Alicia said I just looked it up because I had it from other stuff I've done. Um, in 1890, the census, the average age of marriage for men was 26, for women was 22. So you have a four-year gap, and women were getting married. And this is 1890, so it's not too far from when Joseph Smith was doing this. So this idea that it was normal for a 16-year-old to marry someone in their their late 30s is is absolutely it, it's so dishonest. And um, I hate when people use it from an apologetic standpoint because they know better because these stats are available to anyone who wants to find them. Well, and on that note, a lot of people will reference their grandparent, but the reality was usually when a a 16-year-old grandmother was married, she was marrying like her 18-year-old boyfriend or her 18-year-old boyfriend. It's like they were only a few years apart. So that's the difference. We're not talking about, it wasn't common for an older man in his 30s to marry a 14-year-old or a 15-year-old. No. That that was not common. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah. And there's okay. another one. Yeah. Another one from England. Another one from England has it from 1750 to 1799 average age of men, 25.7 uh, women, 24. So that's an even tighter gap. So just yeah. to throw that out there and blow that up right off the bat, cause that, that apologetic drives me nuts. Cause it's so dishonest. So me too. anyways, yeah. that's all I need to say on that. The church will want to say that it was legal for a 16 year old. Yeah. But- but if, if God's in charge, then the question is, is it ethical and moral? I think that needs to be asked. Well, well. And they want to say it's legal. They'll say, well, it was legal for a 14-year-old to marry Joseph Smith, but it really wasn't legal because even then it's a polygamous marriage. That was illegal. Right. So That's you right. can't, you just That's can't right. go that, that route because every – right. I've said this in so many episodes. Every time you try to fix one thing with apologetics, you're creating four other problems that you're trying to make sure people aren't looking at because and, – and that's why we try to do it where you're looking at all this at once because – yeah, you can't answer it that way. It just doesn't work. Okay. All right. Are we go? Are we on to the next slide? Yeah. And so this is just okay. kind of you the know, implications of Lu- of the Lucy Walker proposal. Yeah. And so we covered at the beginning of this episode some of the patterns I found. So this one in particular, the first one is that Lucy's living in the Smith household, which gives Joseph time to evaluate if she might be open to it. To kind of you know, as I would I would call it, you know, condition her to be more accepting of him being a prophet. Um, second. He's proposing to her when there's no parents around. She's in a vulnerable situation following the death of her mother. Um, This was obviously not lost on Lucy. She says in her journal, no father near to tell me what to do in this trying hour. So she's all on her own with a person she reveres uh, 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 as a prophet of God. He actually says, do you believe I'm a prophet of God? She says, yes. Then he drops a hammer on her and basically says, oh, you believe that? Okay, boom. I need you to marry me. And then third, Joseph Smith is going to apply pressure on Lucy by putting a time constraint by saying, um, I will give you until tomorrow to decide this matter. If you reject this message, the gate will uh, be cl- closed forever against you. And so um, I've heard Jim Bennett talk about this where he'll say, well, that was a second meeting. So it's not like he said that the first time. But I would still say if you – even if you give someone time and their initial reaction is like, no, I am. there's no way in the world I'm marrying you. And then you go back and you put a time constraint. You're still putting a time constraint on. And so you know, imagine that have, you have someone that you believe to be a prophet of God. They tell you that you've been commanded to marry them. That your exaltation depends on it. That your father's exaltation, because he says in there that you're, it'll be a blessing to your father's house, um, and that if you can't tell him yes by tomorrow, the gate will forever be closed against you. And just read that quote as you would read it from anyone else. And if you find that to be repulsive, you cannot then privilege Joseph Smith here because he is doing the very same tactics that we all know um, would be, uh, you know, probably illegal for for in many instances. This is just it's it's hard. Yeah. Okay. 
All right. Uh, Lucy Walker is just the beginning. Did you want to say something, Alicia? Yeah, real quick. There was, yeah, just this there was just this tiny detail that I wanted to add, and it may seem really small, but you know how Joseph Smith would always start by saying, do you believe that I'm a prophet of God? So this was exactly what Warren Jeffs did when he, before he presented to his saints that they were going to go ahead and make that trek to the yearning for Zion camp. Well, I guess it wasn't a trek, but they were going to travel to the yearning of Zion. And for anyone that's not familiar with that situation, he was actually taking some of the children from their parents. So the parents, in, in not all cases, did the parents go with their children. And you think how unimaginable this is, that a parent would send their child with Warren Jeffs to go to this place where they're basically going to be groomed to become his wives. And you think like, how would he get people on board for this? And I think it's just an interesting note that it happened exactly the same way that Joseph Smith started by asking, do you believe that I'm a prophet of God? In the case of Warren Jeffs, he has them show by a raise of the hand um, that they believe he's a prophet. Then he continues with this, uh, with this, uh, you know, this plan. And so I just think it's notable you know, there just seems to be this sequence of um, coercion and it's consistent. And we see the patterns that are very comparable from the formative years of the church to today's FLDS, which I would argue is most consistent with the um, with the early days of the church. Yeah. And, and that is what when ki little kids sing, follow the prophet 54 times in the one song in primary. This is what this is, because the moment that he asked them, do you believe I'm a prophet? And they say, yes, he has now rewired their entire a sense of morality because now if they reject him, they can say, well, you clearly don't believe I'm a prophet because I'm telling you this is from God. And this is his way of basically putting them in a box they can't escape from. And it's exactly. a very manipulative tactic. And it's a very um, kind of a scary tactic because from the other side, once you tell him you believe he's a prophet, you know, you're boxed in. And, and so that's, that's the intent. That is why you see it from Warren Jeffs. That's why you see from all these leaders of all sorts of, of unhealthy places today because it's effective. Because once you get someone into that box, it's hard for them to get out of it. Yep. Got it. Okay. So the next slide is Lucy Walker's spiritual confirmation of polygamy. Yeah. And so I wanted to cover this because obviously this is from the church's essay. They'll always say, well, they had spiritual experiences. So, you know, you need to not worry about it. And so um, we'll cover this more in future episodes. But Lucy Walker is a good experience of how witnesses can be manufactured and manipulated and created. And so from her own account, she says, this aroused every drop of scotch in my veins. For a few moments, I stood fearless before him and looked him in the eye. I felt at this moment that I was called to place myself upon the altar of a living sacrifice, perhaps to brook the world in disgrace and incur the displeasure and contempt of my youthful companions. All my dreams of happiness blown to four winds. Oh, how earnestly I prayed for these wor words to be fulfilled. It was near dawn after another sleepless night when my room was lighted up by a heavenly influence. To me, it was, in comparison, like the brilliant sun bursting through the darkest cloud. The words of the prophet were indeed fulfilled. My soul was filled with a calm, sweet peace that I never knew. Supreme happiness took possession of me, and I received a powerful and irresistible testimony of the truth of plural marriage, which has been like an anchor to the soul through all the trials of life. I felt that I must go out into the morning air and give vent to the joy and gratitude that filled my soul. As I descended the stairs, as I descended the stairs, President Smith opened the door below, took me by the hand, and said, "Thank God you have the testimony. I too have prayed." He led me to a chair, placed his hands upon my head, and blessed me with every blessing my heart could also could possibly desire. The first day of May, eighteen forty-three, I consented to become the prophet's wife, and was sealed to him for time and all eternity, at his house, um, at his own house by Elder William McClellan, and um, yeah. So basically, this is showing that when you have someone who feels like they're going to lose everything 
They have not slept. They have not eaten. They're going to have responses. We've talked about this in previous episodes, like in the Kirtland Temple, where everyone's having these crazy experiences because they fasted and they drank a bunch of wine. And in this case, she has the pressure of thinking she's going to lose her exaltation. Um, she's not eating. She's not sleeping. And then, we'll, you know, she gets this experience. And I would just – I'll end with saying, why does she have to go through all that torment uh, to see a, potentially a light in the room when God could have just sent, you know, an angel to her and said, hey, this is right. So it just shows how you can um, – create your own experience. And we've all had that. I've had that in my life where I'm just so upset about something and I'm, I'm up late and I'm thinking about it. And all of a sudden you feel that feeling of calm because you know, you can do this. Um, I, I don't know. It just shows yeah. how manipulation works. Alicia, do you have any reactions to this? spiritual? I yeah. I wish I had more context for like indoctrination. There's so many great experts that could talk to, uh, talk to this point of like, uh, co- is it cognitive bias? I mean, when the brain creates what it, you've already come to a conclusion and now your brain is going to create what it needs to come to that conclusion to solidify that. So not only does Joseph Smith say, do you believe I'm a prophet of God? He also says to her before they part, if you will pray sincerely for light and understanding in relation thereto, you shall receive a testimony of the correctness of this principle. You shall receive. Okay. So she is going into this um, with that notion. And she believes that he's a prophet. So anyway, uh, and I just think it's important to point out because this is the most, you know, this is the apologetic point. This is the strongest apologetic point, looking at the girl's actual spiritual experiences, their own testimony. So I think it's helpful to add a little more context to that. Yeah. It's like the um, Book of Mormon Witnesses where Martin Harris is with them and he can't see the plate. So he leaves. The other two claim they see it. They go back to Martin. They pray again. Then Martin claims he saw it probably because at that point you've been led to see it. You have other people who are claiming to have these things and all of a sudden, yeah, you're going to claim to see it because it's either that or you're every, you know what I mean? You lose everything. And I just, I feel like to right. Alicia's point, this is, this is how you lead somebody through a vision. This is how you lead someone to make a decision they don't want to make. For me, it's an epistemological problem. Epistemology is the study of how we know things. And uh, in, in Mormonism, we're taught that if we get really strong, overwhelming feelings or emotions, that that is the Holy Ghost. It's either the Holy Ghost telling us that something's true, or it's Satan counterfeiting God's Holy Ghost and and deceiving us uh, with good feelings that something's true when it's really false, or the adversary, Satan, can give us really bad feelings. And if it's true that feelings equal divine approval or satanic tempting, uh, then, then how do we distinguish between our own genuine just feelings of fear or happiness or kindness or wanting to please others? How do we distinguish between that and what is divine or of Satan? And and again, all you have to do is watch that video that we released on Mormon Stories where you have people, Muslims and, and Jews and Mormon fundamentalists all bearing almost identical testimonies where they say that the spirit came into their heart and filled them with the spirit and told them that what, you know, the prophet that they happen happen to believe in is true, whether it's David Koresh or Warren Jeffs or Jim Jones uh, or Keith Raniere. There's an epistemological problem once people are led to believe that their feelings equal God's approval. And we don't have to look any farther than under the banner of heaven and the Lafferty brothers uh, and, and many other really horrific examples of really horrible things done by people who claimed 
that they had those warm fuzzies in their heart. And you can't really talk a, a person who's a committed believer out of their spiritual witness. And we're actually not trying to do that for people that are open to considering evidence. We're just saying, hey, um, it's worth contemplating and learning more about epistemology and this this idea of um, emotional flow or emotion uplift. What's the other word? Emotion... Um, uh, elevation, elevation emotion. emotion elevation elevation emotion it's worth learning more about these principles so that you can really ask yourself does the fact that a 16 year old girl whose dad's away who's being pressured by the prophet who's got all this family and social pressure around her to accept along with the prophet's power a proposal and then she gets a feeling is that is that god and the holy ghost or is that coercion and a desire to conform socially and we're going to let our viewers and listeners decide what what they think is right. We just want to at least ra raise some some hopefully reasonable questions about that. Yeah. And I, and I just want yeah. I just wanted to mention because I I think that the video that you mentioned is so compelling and the search query for it on YouTube is testimonies and spiritual experiences across religions. It's posted on your podcast, Mormon Stories podcast, and I think that that is again, really compelling. I think, I think it's a great one to listen to. It just gives you a sense of how we believe that our spiritual experiences are unique. And sometimes we don't realize that they are pretty consistent among all other religions. Yeah. And, and most of the religious creeds are mutually exclusive because you, Joseph can't be God's one prophet and Muhammad and, and Warren Jeffs. Those are all mutually exclusive. And so, you know, so anyway, I think we've made that point. Okay, so the next slide is Lucy Walker's testimony in the Temple Lot case. Yeah, oh, this find, yeah, I just find this interesting because this is Lucy Walker giving testimony in the Temple Lot case. And so they ask her, can you state the circumstances under which he first taught you that principle of, of polygamy or plural marriage? And she says, well, the circumstances were these. It was a command from God for, to me to receive it, and I would rather have laid down my life than disobeyed it. But it was a grand and glorious principle that was to be established. And when I was called upon... Um, when I, and when I was called upon, I stepped forward and gave myself up as a sacrifice to establish that principle. And I did that in the face of prejudice, of course, in this day and age, this is in 1892, we are considered fanatics, of course, more or less. I gave myself up as a sacrifice for it was not a love matter, so to speak in our affairs, at least on my part, it was not, but simply the giving up of myself as a sacrifice to establish that grand, grand and glorious principle that God had revealed to the world. And then they asked her, did you live with Joseph Smith as his wife? And she said, he was my husband, sir. And so Lucy uh, Walker here is basically saying that she didn't love Joseph Smith. She viewed herself as a sacrifice. Clearly, she did not want to do it. Um, and it's a chilling comment on what these women had to go through um, after being convinced by Joseph Smith that God was commanding them to marry and have sex with them. And I can't imagine um, you know, how Lucy Walker was able to do some of the things she would have had to have done with them, knowing that she didn't love them. I just, it, it's, it's weird. And it's one of those things that it's uncomfortable to think about, but we all have to think about it. She was um, 17 years old when she married and had sex with a 37 year old man who claimed he was doing it in the name of God. It's just, it's chilling when you really think about all of the implications and all of the events that go into these proposals and marriages of these young teenage girls. Anything else, Alicia? I think that about wraps it up for Lucy. I'm excited okay. to get to Zina. <laughs> okay. 
China's next. China Huntington Jacob Smith Young. What a what a mouthful. Yeah, so I I've made sure to put all the last names because a lot of times um, you would see on the church's website Zina Huntington Jacobs Young because they never wanted to mention that Joseph married her as well. Um, so she lived in the Smith household for a few months in the winter of 1839 to 1840. Um, she was recovering from an illness, and at that time, um, Zina received numerous courtship visits from Henry Bailey Jacobs, a friend of her brother's, who accompanied Oliver to the house. Simultaneously, Joseph Smith, in private conversations, taught her the principle of plural marriage suggesting that she become a spiritual wife. And um, so basically you've got Zina who has someone that's courting her that she actually likes. And you've got Joseph while she's living in his house, recovering from an illness, um, trying to condition her to accept his proposal for, for marriage. And so um, obviously this tormented Zina because she was falling in love with Henry, but she knew that the person she viewed as a, a prophet proclaimed that God had given her to him to become one of his polygamous wives. And so uh, Zina wrote in her autobiography, Oh, dear heaven, grant me wisdom. Help me to know the way, O Lord, my God. Let thy will be done. And with thine arm around, about to guide, shield, and direct. And so what's interesting is Zina is going to rebuff Joseph's proposal, and she's going to marry the person she actually loves in Henry Jacobs on March 7th, 1841. Um, at, this, at this point, Zina was 21 years old and was convinced that by doing this, she would circumvent any further overtures uh, from Joseph Smith. Okay. So, so, we go to the next oh, so go ahead. anything you want to say about Zina so far? Yeah, I have some more. I have some insights, but I think we could probably go to the next. Okay. Slide. Okay. So the next slide, Joseph Smith's overtures did not end when Zina got married. Okay. That's awkward. Yeah. So Zina thought that would put an end to it and it does not. And so um, Joseph even throws off their wedding day plans. And so from Emma Jacobs, um, she says, this is Henry's sister. A family tradition relates that Henry and Zina had asked uh, Joseph to perform their marriage. He consented but did not appear, and John Bennett officiated in his place. When Zina later asked Smith about his absence, he reportedly said that he couldn't give the one uh, he couldn't give to one man a woman who had been given to him by the Lord. The Lord had made it known to him that Zina was to be his celestial wife. So, you know, basically Joseph's like, I'm not performing that marriage because you're mine. And I just said so, oh my God. Anyways, so jo Joseph Smith was so convinced that Zina was given to him that he wouldn't perform the marriage that he promised he would do. Uh, that was actually based in love to Henry. And so this is where it gets kind of crazy to me. So Joseph doesn't even let it go here. So just a few months after she becomes a married woman, uh, he sends Zina a message through her brother, uh, Dimmick. It says, he sent word to my brother saying, tell Zina, I put it off and put it off till an angel with a drawn sword stood by me and told me if I did not establish that principle upon the earth, I would lose my position in my life. At this point, Zina was seven months pregnant with Henry's child. She's being placed in a situation where she now has to stay true to the to the man she loves, who is the father of her child, or to marry the man she believes is a prophet of God, because he will be killed if she does not marry him. I this this is one of those ones where okay. you're just like, what is going on here? Alicia, you ready to comment or you want to wait? Well, I'd like to wait until after the bit about the missions. Okay. What happens, okay. What happens to so my insights are on Henry? So okay. This is okay. a really, this is a really sad story. It yeah. Is. So Joseph like won't let it go. The, yeah. the woman said no. Like when we talk about consent, no means no, right? Yep. And and she said no. He keeps pursuing even when she's pregnant. He won't marry her. Like that's that's this is predatory. Yeah. Kind of creeper, abusive kind of territory. Yeah. If I'm just if this is true. 
I mean, it's from her own words. It's from her own words. So, I mean, there's no, this is not from some antagonistic source. This is from her own words. And what's crazy about it is he says that the angel's going to kill him if he doesn't establish that principle upon the earth. He can establish it with other women. That's what is so ridiculous about this statement. And it's so so transparently predatorial. It it just is. Yeah, yeah. And And this is where he's pulling out the angel with the sword. After she's already married and gotten pregnant by the other guy. Okay. All right. That's a problem. All right. Let's go to the next slide. Zina submits after Joseph's angel with the drawn sword story. All yeah, right. so then Zina. Yeah, story so works. it works. Of course, it works because you're like you want to. You're going to allow the prophet of God to be killed because you're so selfish they won't marry me. It's so. Anyways, so Zina would then be sealed to Joseph Smith with her loving husband Henry standing as the witness. I again, I, I this, ama- <laughs> I can't imagine poor Henry standing as a witness as Joseph Smith takes his wife to be his polyandrous wife, knowing full well that upon death that she will be Joseph's along with the child that she's pregnant with. That is his. So um, it's clear that Zina is tormented by this decision. And she famously said the following, I made a greater sacrifice than to give my life for. I never anticipated again to be looked upon as an honorable woman by those I clearly loved or dearly loved. Um, And then for Henry's part, he actually rationalizes this um, by stating the following, whatever the prophet did was right without making the wisdom of God's authorities bend to the reasoning of any man. And that statement right there is used today um, in, in uh, of course, phrased differently, whether it's a uh, Dallin Oaks or Russell Nelson, it's always whatever the prophet does, you have to listen to. And this leads really good people to make really bad decisions because if the person who claims to speak for God um, abuses their authority or makes it up, they are going to get really good people to do some really, really bad things against their own judgment because of the fact that they believe this person speaks for God. And this slide makes me want to my yeah. head to explode. I, I, I did. I have not read in sacred loneliness. I'm just going to admit it. And I, I did not realize that, that Henry was standing next to his wife while Joseph was sealed to her. I just, oh my, yeah. Alicia, are you ready yet, Alicia? No, I just wanted to point out, this is a really important point that Henry is faithful. He actually remains faithful throughout his letters home from his missions, which we're going to talk about next, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. so he's faithful they're all viewing this the prophet speaks for god so we are literally doing god's will right now even though it is the the hardest thing we would rather die than do this we're doing it for the lord and we know that because this man right here speaks for the lord and i'm just going to say that's not that's for me that's not a credible defense that the husband was okay with it because it's still coercive he's still being either threatened with punishment or promised eternal salvation and uh, and you just have to go to the accomplices with with Warren Jeffs or Keith Raniere or or Jim Jones or whatever. All of those people have people who who literally died for their devotion to their leader. And so just because Henry was OK with it, number one, doesn't mean it was right. Number two, doesn't mean it wasn't coercive. And number three, doesn't mean it was true. Um, yeah. All right, so uh, Joseph would send Zina's legal husband on missions. Yeah, so following uh, Joseph's uh, polyandrous marriage to Zina, Henry gets sent away on missions, um, sometimes personally sent by Joseph. Um, we don't have any record of, of, of Zina and Joseph having sex. Neither of them obviously talk about that. Um, but, you know, it would be one thing for a polygamous wife to admit to sexual relations, but a polyandrous wife would be a whole different level. And so I'm guessing that's why the church didn't want to push her out on the Temple Lock case. Um but remember, they're married, uh, and he's sending Henry away for long stretches. So the idea they didn't have sex seems unlikely to me. Um, and honestly, it makes no sense given the very premise that Joseph is supposed to establish a principle to raise seed. And 
We know that Zaina doesn't get pregnant from Joseph. At least I don't believe there's any indication that that's the case. So it, it's out there. But um, we know Brigham did have sex with her uh, after sending Henry away. So anyways, uh, while Henry was away on his missions, he was still deeply in love with Zaina, uh, telling John D. Lee during one of the missions what a true, virtuous, lovely woman she was. He almost worshipped her. And, um, you know, one small note here is that Zaina would actually stand proxy for Jane Manning James. Uh, when Jane was sealed to Joseph as a servant, um, because the church would now allow a black woman into the temple, even to be sealed as an eternal servant to Joseph. So that's a small, obviously, side note there, but it kind of ties into our priesthood episodes as well. Another side note that I think is important is the fact that I know I read somewhere. So Mike, hopefully you'll have, hopefully one of you will have a source for this. <laughs> he was he was commanded to um, give up his belongings to the church before he left on his mission. I think yeah, I think that was standard too for a lot of people where they basically say if you're leaving for a mission, put all your stuff with the church, and then you know before you so leave. How, so, I, so how so how are you now going to support your wife and children when you get yeah. home from your mission, which is going to become relevant because he just keeps going on mission after mission after mission. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and that's you know number one. You mentioned I think a previous slide that William C. Bennett or John C. Bennett was involved. That's deeply problematic because we now know that John C. Bennett was later excommunicated for what Joseph called spiritual wifery. So, you know, there have been accusations that he performed abortions in Nauvoo, which I don't know if we have enough evidence to really confirm. But just the fact that John C. Bennett was involved in anything makes it deeply problematic um, to me, uh, not, not to pile on. But then also there's this conflict of interest where Joseph is basically Oh, I'm just the prophet sending people on missions and I'm just going to, I could, I could call men on missions or not. Uh, you know, it's up to me and I could call lots of other men on missions that I'm not going to call on missions, but yeah, Henry, I think you really need to go. Um, you know, that feels like a really problematic conflict of interest. Yeah. He's sending off the husband of a woman that he likely wants to have sex with. And for the John C. Bennett thing, John C. Bennett almost was Joseph Smith's right-hand man until he gets like, outed. He was like in the first presidency or co-president yeah. of the church. So it would make some sense that when Joseph Smith tried to throw the monkey wrench into their wedding day, that John C. Bennett might have been pulled to, to, to stand in. So I don't know that that's nefarious because it's it, 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 – I'm we just not don't saying know. it's nefarious. I'm saying it's problematic knowing that very soon after John C. Bennett's going to be excommunicated and accused of misdeeds around, around sexual misconduct. Yeah. And we'll, our, our next episode is going to cover a lot about how what John C. Bennett was doing mirrors a lot of what Joseph's doing here. Um, and, and I would just say, we, we talked before, there, as far as I, I've never found any credible evidence on, on, on abortion. So I, I for the most That's part, away from careful. that. I was, I was yeah. to say we don't have enough evidence. There's just... Yeah. And yeah, and, and and just the fact that um, to your point, Joseph Smith, he's he's the one choosing the women. He's the one choosing the men he's sending away. And so this idea that, um, you know, we talked about this uh, early in this episode. I, I made a point of saying, when when he goes to these women, he's the one choosing them. They're not choosing him. Yeah. And so it just shows the power imbalance and how that can be abused so badly. Yeah, and again, I, I you said this really quickly, and I just want to drive the point home. Mormon, what, what Mormon apologists like Brian Hales and others like to do is say, well, there's no evidence of, so, so first of all, we've talked about, we introduced the term polyandry in a previous episode. That's a woman being married to multiple men. Uh, what the church wants to do is say, there's no evidence that any of Joseph Smith's polyandrous wives had sex with him. And first of all, what do they want? A, you know, video camera, what, you know, but also yeah. 
do they expect people to like publish it in the newspaper? Hey, Joseph and I had sex last yeah. weekend. Like what evidence are they looking for? But more importantly, as you mentioned very quickly, the Book of Mormon, when it says, uh, when the Book of Mormon makes the exception allowing for polygamy in Jacob, it says, except I want to raise up a righteous seed. And you said that really quickly, but it means the whole point of polygamy is sex. And every other polygamous prophet after Joseph Smith and polygamous Mormon was having sex with all of his wives, we presume. Yep. So why would we want to just bracket off? What what reason would we have other than we're embarrassed by lying about it and or yep. by by our sacred first prophet, um, you know, being associated with it? For what other reason do we want to bracket off the polyandrous marriages and say that they weren't sexual? It yep. it literally makes no sense, and it's one of those isolated. A, a, you know, non-contextual apologetics that if you look at the full picture is, is disingenuous, maybe not intentionally, but it's just completely dishonest in my view. Yeah. And if I can add in real quick from our last episode on DNC-132, Joseph Smith is condemning Zina to a life in outer darkness or hell or whatever, because DNC-132 says, if you marry someone by the new and everlasting covenant, and you're still with someone who's not married to you in the new and everlasting covenant, you're damned, you're going to be destroyed. So Zina living with Henry after marrying Joseph is condemning her to being destroyed. So that just shows how absurd um, the rationales and the, the the dictations that Joseph Smith is giving on, on polygamy are because you either have to believe that Joseph is so sinister that he's knowingly condemning Zina to be destroyed just for his own his own personal desire or DNC 132 is completely nonsensical, which it is anyways. But I'm just saying like you can't take this stuff all together. It, it's, it's such a mess. And you cannot untangle it with apologetics because every apologetic you use, as we, you just said, opens up more problems. It does not solve anything. And anything to jump in here on, Alicia, before we go to the next slide? Well, it seems like we have these conflicting apologetics, too, because on one hand, we're saying, well, um, like in um, Heber C. Kimball's view, it was that they would be linked in the eternities. That was the whole reason that he pushed Helen into polygamy, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. But on the other hand, we have like multiple sources that say that Joseph Smith clearly indicated that it was to raise up a pure I want to say he used the word race somewhere in um, Todd Compton's work, and it was like a secondary source. But someone said that that's what, he, you know, that Joseph Smith, it was it was the, the purpose of polygamy was to raise up a righteous race of people, a righteous generation. So, you know, which one is it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, yep. That's right. Okay. All right. Well, let's talk about Zina's life after Joseph Smith's death. Yeah. And so this is, I think, what Alicia was kind of anxious to talk about. And it's to me, one of those things that just, it gets worse. So um, after Joseph Smith died and was killed, uh, many of his wives were taken by the other leaders of the church with many of them going to Brigham Young um, and Heber Kimball. Uh, Brigham Young took Zina and was sealed to her for time, which meant that even though she was already sealed to Henry for time and Joseph for eternity, Brigham wanted Zina as well because she had a husband. So this idea that Brigham Young needed to take her is problematic. And it goes against CNC 132, as I just mentioned, it goes against our basic sense of morality and the biblical scriptures as well. And, and again, the children that Brigham is going to have with, with Henry's wife, Zina, are going to be sealed to Joseph Smith, just to show how screwed up this kind of structure is. And so um, Brigham Young also sent Henry away on missions. Um, and even during a time when Henry was very ill, Brigham still sent him away on a mission, which seems insane. Um, while on the mission, uh, Henry continued to send his wife love letters, writing the following. I dream of you often and desire to see you very much. He wrote in one letter. Another says, Zina, I've not forgotten you, my love, as, it, as ever 
is as ever the same and much more abundantly and hope that it will continue to grow stronger and stronger to all eternity worlds without end. I remain as ever your affectionate husband in truth. And okay. it's just, it shows that Henry still loved her and the church is going, I'll, actually I'll let Alicia do this. Cause she, I know she's covered some of this before. Alicia. Yeah, I think, well, just like the um, young wives journal entries, I think that it's really good to read the letters home from Henry Jacobs. Some of them have been transcribed and uploaded to Family Search, and I know that's not probably the best source, um, but I'm imagining that they probably are somewhere in the Joseph Smith papers. These letters home from Henry indicate that he loved his family so much. He loved his boys. He loved the prophet. At one point, he refers to Joseph as either our God Joseph or our Lord Joseph. I mean, they really revered, he really revered him as a prophet and felt like he was doing what he needed to do, um, what the Lord wanted him to do. And I think that that's relevant because in this one letter, he's, he's saying to his wife that he's so disheartened that he hasn't heard back from them. He's writing home to his wife and children over and over again, and he's not hearing back for them from them. And I was so sad to learn that the children really didn't have any knowledge of their father caring for them. Um, so at one point, Zina chooses to go with Brigham. We don't have a lot of context for that. We can only really make assumptions about, about her choice to do that. You know, he's Henry has sold off his property. He really has no way of supporting his family when he gets home, I imagine. Um, so the most interesting point of this entire story, and I think that just really where it all culminates, is where we see in the church's source, even today, the church asserts that Zina's husband, Henry, abandoned her and the children. Now, just think about this. He's going on missions commanded by the prophet. In one case that Mike just mentioned, after his second baby is born, he's sick and, and he is sent to England. And he, in the church's source, even today, it says that Zina was abandoned by her husband, Henry. So if you think about it, the only thing left you have after you die is your legacy. That's the only thing that you have. And the church is willing to just completely destroy his legacy, destroy his reputation when he has devoted his life to the quote gospel, to the prophet. And this is what's left of him. And I have a link to the church's um, source where it references him as having deserted his family. So this is uh, this is the point for my husband that he just kind of lost it. It was like, where is the integrity here? For the yeah. church's yeah. reputation, this is all for the, you know, it's just. Yeah. Yeah. Like you said earlier, where do you draw the line? Because at some point you have to establish where that line is before you can evaluate this stuff. And, 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 and at some point, like I, yeah, I have a problem with apologists who try to to defend this. It's like Patrick Mason has the only approach you can take, which is to say, yeah, I'm not defending this like because, sin. yeah, it looks like sin. Now, of course, I, I also think that when you the moment you admit Joseph Smith is willing to use deception, I mean, we've shown that with treasure digging. We've shown it with the gold plates. We show all uh, through the Book of Mormon and all that stuff. I think at some point it's like, well, how many times do you have to deceive to to have a pattern where – you know, it's not from God, but that's a, a different issue. But there's no reason to defend this. It's just, it, it yeah. just, it, it doesn't pass any smell test or decency test, and and you don't need to defend it because you were yeah. raised to think he was a prophet. 
if yeah. there's two, if there's two things the church could do today to make things right, well, there's a lot they could do. But one is to reverse the ceiling of Jane Manning as a servant. Why don't why don't they undo that and make a really public announcement about that? And number two, why don't they correct the statement that Henry Jacobs abandoned his family? Yeah. 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 So I, I also want to register uh, a, a couple problems with uh, with with this account. You know, I'm I'm going to go back to this slide you show, Zina Huntington, Jacob Smith Young. You do, I think you you do that kind of tongue in cheek, yeah. but it's actually not funny. It's kind of tragic. It's this idea that it, it's always the men in power. You know, when somebody when somebody is claiming to talk to God, it's always the men in power who get the spoils. And so in this case, I remember a quote once that said, you know, whenever a group of people receive the revelation from God, that a group of people is God's chosen. It's always the people receiving the revelation that, that they're the ones chosen. They never receive the revelation that that other group over there is chosen. Right. And, and accordingly, whenever a prophet gets the revelation about polygamy, he's always the one that gets the most. He's always the one that gets first choice. He's always the one that gets the spoils. And then if he allows other, you know, you could say Joseph Smith was generous because at least in his case, he, and this is gross offensive language, at least he let other men also have plural wives. For that whole conversation, it introduces this problem in DNC 132 and just with the structural problem of polygamy, which is that women are, property. Women are possessions. Women are chattel or cattle or whatever word you want to use. Like that's problematic in and of itself, the way that women are treated as objects, as, as, as one friend says, dimes, dimes to a dollar, pennies to a dime, um, a fraction of the worth of a, of a man. That's a problem. But then the problem that it's not like Joseph's getting the revelation. It's like, Hey, I'm going to just have Emma because you know, because I want to be above reproach. It's going to be other men in the community that get the plural wives. It's always Joseph and Brigham and Heber and Hiram, the men who are highest on the pecking order, the number one get first choice, number two get the largest numbers, Brigham Young's case over 50. But then three, when when a prophet dies and you know where, where do the wives go? They just get assigned to the to the highest ranking prophets in charge. And by the way, this is exactly what happened with Warren Jeffs. When when Warren Jeffs' dad died, Rulon, well, guess who got Rulon's wives? It was Warren. I, I mean, I, I think that's true, but I hope my point carries, which is it's always the guys in charge that get the most spoils and get the first pick. And that's a sign that there's something wrong. Alicia, tell me if I'm if I'm getting that wrong. No, I was just thinking a little common sense goes a long way here. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Really, it's a great point. Yeah. And, and to see Zina just passed from Joseph, I mean, from Henry to Joseph to Brigham to Heber, that's there's no world where that is going to be okay that this woman just gets passed from old man to old man to old man in power. There's no world where that's that's okay. No, and it just shows, like you said, when when you set up yourself as the only person who could speak for God, you become the gatekeeper, and so you decide yeah. who gets what women and who doesn't get what women. And there's stories of Brigham Young where someone will go to Brigham, they're like, "I want to marry this girl," and he's like, 
no, nah, she's not right for you. And then all of a sudden he marries her. I, I, I have to look it up. because I know that happened. And there's, then there's also one the quote. There's also the quote of like, and, I, and we got Mike, you, you write this down. We got to include this quote before we end these series, if we haven't already, but it's this idea of like general authorities, Mormon general authorities in the mid 19th century, getting mad because some general authorities get first pick on the, on the immigrant, on the young teenage immigrant women coming over from Europe. And it's like, brother, so-and-so is yeah, getting yeah. first pick on these women. And I, I, I want, I want in on the spoils. Do you know the quote that I'm talking about? Mike? Yeah, it's uh, I'll, I'll find it. Real you quick don't need a, I'm just saying, let's, let's make sure we include that at some point, but it, but yeah. it, it, it really drives home this idea that it's, it's more like an auction of cattle where yeah. they're bidding, where they're bidding with their power on who gets the cutest girls and the youngest girls. Yeah, it is. And it's yeah. about, uh, it's, it's about power. And it's also about, like you said, getting first picks and, and, and isn't it funny that the people that claim to be profit are the ones that decide who gets who. And I, it's always going to be a, a it's, it's bad. Yeah. And it's not like the poor farmer or the humble school teacher is getting the 50 wives. It's like the rich, the rich farmer, the rich businessman, the person who knows where the bodies are buried, the fixer that's helping Joseph clean up all his messes. It's the men closest to the prophet who are wealthy or in power or who are doing the prophet's bidding, they're the ones who get the spoils of the women. Alicia, you yep. get the last word on this topic. I, I think it was William Clayton that you might've been referring to, Mike, where she he married wives or sisters and then wanted to take their younger sister and Joseph yes. Smith was like, I have received a revelation. You yep. cannot take the younger sister. We can't have three sisters in one family. I just yep. received a revelation, but I'm going to take her instead. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just think of how, I mean, like, I know, I, again, when we do these episodes, we're trying to be as level-headed as we can, but like, think of how nonsensical that is. Like this idea that someone's like, I want to marry these three sisters, which by itself is insane. And Joseph's like, I got a revelation. You can't marry three. You can have two though, but we're going to, I'm going to leave that one. I'm actually, I'll, I'll, I'll help you out. I'm going to take that youngest one. It's just, it's. And, and Joseph married not only sister pairs, but mother daughter pairs as well. Yeah. And, and we'll get into that with the apologetics because that's yeah. another thing we're like, well, they're creating an, an eternal chain. It's like, no, they're not because he's marrying mothers and daughters. You don't need to marry both if you're trying to create a chain and you certainly don't need to have sex with, you know what I mean? It's just, it, yeah. it, it's just, it's so stupid. Uh, yeah. when you look at, when you look at all of the things that have to happen for this to work and John, I'm going to read you that quote. It's from Heber Kimball. And it says, uh, the brother missionaries have been in the habit of picking out the prettiest women for themselves before they get here and bringing on the ugly ones for us hereafter. You have to bring them all here before taking any of them and let us all have a fair shake. Uh, who is that? Uh, and when, what he, was it said? So it's Heber Kimball. Um, and I, I believe there are apologists who say that they don't trust the quote. I think it's from an article um, in the New York Times that's not very nice to the church. So I'm just throwing that out there that there is controversy over the quote, but it's from um, an 1860 New York Times article. And it, it quotes Brigham Young as saying that. So I will say that there is some controversy over whether or not that quote is 100% legitimate, but um, that, it, you know, that is what was written the in 1860. Problem with that is the church has a long history of any calling anyone critical of the church anti-Mormon right. and dismissing any source that's critical of the church as invalid because it's critical. And that's, it. you know, it's right. important to consider the credibility of historical sources. But when the church has that long history of smearing and defaming any person or any evidence that criticizes, then then it's the church's fault when we're 
we're sort of leaning towards privileging uh, critical comments because we we can't trust the church as a as a neutral, objective uh, broker or determiner of the validity of quotes. Anyway, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, for today's episode, we're going to end with one more. We're gonna we're gonna split this episode into two parts because we're already an hour and a half in. Yeah. And we're about halfway done with the slides, and I don't want to rush. So, we're gonna end today with uh i think a really important uh example of a sister pair yeah and it's going to be emma emily and eliza partridge yeah so emily and eliza partridge were the daughters of edward partridge who was the first bishop of the church we've actually talked about him a lot because of the uh back and forth that joseph smith had with him um when we talk about the priesthood restoration and how his uh authority was being challenged so that if that name sounds familiar I mean, he obviously is very integral in early history so um, Edward was tarred and feathered and was a target in Missouri. Um, and the Partridge sisters, unfortunately, had to live through the trauma of seeing their father, um, you know, treated like that and tarred and feathered. So obviously, um, they they grew up with that. And so uh, upon moving to Nauvoo, um, Edward Partridge died and the Partridge sisters then moved in with the Smith home. Um, in 1842, when Emily was about 18 years old, uh, Joseph Smith attempted to introduce the practice of polygamy to her. He requested that she read a letter and burn it afterwards. But Emily was having none of it. Emily wrote the following. I shut Joseph up so quick that he didn't bring up the subject again for several months. Um, this is where I mentioned earlier about having the mothers in Zion, the, the older uh, wives. So he then sends one of his older polygamous wives, Elizabeth Durfee, to recruit Emily into polygamy. And as I mentioned earlier, this is a pattern. And what's interesting is during this visit, um, Elizabeth actually kind of wonders aloud um, next to Emily uh, if there was any truth to the rumors of spiritual wives. So Elizabeth is married to Joseph already. And now she's talking to Emily as if um, she's trying to feel out what Emily knows about polygamy before she kind of, you know, tries to sell her on it. And I think that's a very deceptive tactic. And you obviously are not going to have Elizabeth doing that without Joseph Smith telling her, hey, I need you to, to try to, you know, get her to come around on this. Okay. Um, Alicia, anything you want to comment on f- for this slide? I have so many thoughts on Sister Durfee or Mrs. Durfee, as they called her. Um, I think it's a really sad but fascinating um, power dynamic to look at in patriarchy, where you will often see this even today when there's scarcity involved, that there are women in the system that will work to uphold the patriarchy by oppressing other women. Um, It's really sad. You see it today, even like in corporate America, and um, it's a result of the patriarchy and these women, um, like they're in some cases, they're only, and I don't mean to say that Sister Durfee was doing this for power, but I think that it's important to point this out that you do see women in the system that are oppressing other women. It's just part of the nature of that oppressive system of patriarchy. So I would think that that maybe had something to do with these older wives who were willing to go be mentors, you know, and they were viewed as just um, women who already had a testimony of this principle. And so that they were going to mentor them and help teach them. But looking at it without that biased lens of indoctrination, I think that we can see it as maybe potentially a dynamic of patriarchy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah for sure. And and I'm just going to highlight that, that, you know, we introduced the pillars of Joseph's polygamy at the beginning of this episode. This has, you know, teenage girls, they're vulnerable. The dad's dead. They're living with Joseph. Um, and, and he's, he's doing his coercion thing, 
both by being profit and by getting other women. So like this, and it's a sister pair, like this, this has a lot of the elements of, of Joseph's patterns just in this yep. one example. Yeah. 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 I love it. Okay. Thanks. Thanks for that, Alicia. Let's go to the next slide. Joseph gives Emily Partridge a birthday gift of polygamy. So Emily, of course, uh, knew that Joseph had already attempted to engage her in this, but did not say anything and learned uh, and later learned that Elizabeth was a friend of plurality and knew all about it. And so basically she she learns later on, oh, yeah, she was in on it, you know, the whole time. And, you know, as we just said, this is an example of Joseph sending another polygamous wife to test Emily to see if she'd be willing. And this gives Joseph Smith plausible deniability if if Emily gives off the vibes like, you know, yeah, I heard about this. Like if she starts blabbing about Joseph, then Joseph knows. I mean, it, it's it's a really deceptive test that joseph is putting her through and so on emily's 19th birthday joseph smith gave her what must what he must have thought was the greatest gift of all the commandment to marry and have sex with him as a polygamous bride um from emily he taught me this principle of plural marriage that is called polygamy now but we called a celestial marriage and he told me that this principle had been revealed to him but it was not generally known and he went on and said that the lord had given him given me to him and he wanted to know if i would consent to a marriage and i consented and so this just shows that joseph smith used another woman to kind of soften up her, her, um, you know, defenses and then goes back to her after he knows from, um, Mrs. Durfee that she's more receptive after being, you know, conditioned, groomed, whatever you want to call it, uh, and goes back and, and, and proposes to her. Um, and, and obviously at that point she, she, uh, submits. Alicia thoughts on the slide. Yeah, it definitely looks like grooming to me. And I was also, as I was reading about Mrs. Durfee, it reminded me of going to the temple for the first time and sitting in that endowment session. I apologize if this is offensive because I know the endowment session is sacred to a lot of people. But just thinking back on it now, there's so many things that happen in that room that would be startling and troubling but you're looking around and you're seeing all these people that you trust. You're seeing your young women's president and your parents and all these people that you know and love, and they're all going along with it. And so I just thought it was an interesting, like, to me, that was the immediate comparison that I made, um, that Mrs. Durfee is this mentor and she's this woman that already has a testimony of plural marriage. And I'm going to mentor you and I'm going to help you learn. I'm going to help you gain a testimony of this because it seems difficult, but really it's the Lord's will. So I'm just uh, I'm just smiling. I have a first cousin uh, named Joan uh, Joan Beatty who married a man named Doug Durfee, and her name's Joan Durfee. And I'm just I am 100 percent sure that that my that my first cousin's husband is a descendant of of this woman. Yeah, so very, yeah, very very likely. <laughs> probably a proud probably a proud descendant of of this woman. Yeah. Um, all right. So and what a birthday gift, by the way, right? Yeah, I just find uh, it. I mean, I know it's tongue in cheek, but it's just, yeah. Happy birthday. Why don't you marry me? It's just, it's so weird. But. Yeah. Th this idea of coercion again, it's, it's repeating. No means no, no means no. And so you don't keep trying. And, and again, if God's gonna, if God can appear to people, he needs to appear to Emily. Not yeah. just. That, right? then, yeah. And you know, I mean, you can ask somebody a second time, like uh, my, my wife, the first time I asked her out, she told me no. And and never told me the reason. And never it never told me that because I wasn't Mormon. I didn't know she couldn't go with me because she wasn't 16 yet. So 
ironically enough, I didn't know that at the time, but she did say no. And then the next year I asked her again and she said yes. And she was actually just about to turn 16. But anyways, the point is you can ask again. It's just you can't. Now, if I had sent someone to her that she trusted as an authority figure to soften her up to accept my then I'd say, no, you can't do that because that's you're then circumventing consent by sending out people to deceptively try to soften you up to what Joseph Smith's trying to do by telling them it's okay. And I think that's where it, that's why consent in this case is being kind of chipped away at free agency, being, free agency is being chipped away at because you're using deceptive tactics in, in the name of God, by the way, to get people to accept these proposals that they obviously didn't want to do in the first place. Okay. All right. Well, let's get to Emily Partridge's account of Joseph Smith's proposal. Yeah. So this is what Emily wrote. And she said, um, Mrs. Durfee came to me one day and said that Joseph would like an opportunity to talk to me. I asked her if she knew what he wanted. She said that she thought he wanted me for a wife. I was thoroughly prepared for almost anything. I was to meet him in the evening at Mr. Kimball's. Brother Heber told his children that they better go into one of the neighbors as there would be a council that evening at their house. Then he said to me, I don't know if it's Valate. I think it's Valate. Valate. Valate is not at home and you had better call another time. So I started out with William and Helen and bid, bid them goodbye. I started for home as fast as I could go so as to get beyond being called back for I still dreaded the interview. However, soon I heard Brother Kimball call Emily Emily rather low but loud enough for me to hear. I thought at first that I would not go back and took no notice of his calling, but he kept calling and was about to overtake me. So I stepped, stopped and went back with him. I cannot tell you all Joseph said, but he said the Lord had commanded to enter into plural marriage and given me to him. And although I had gotten badly frightened, he knew I would yet have him. So he waited till the Lord told him. My mind was now prepared and would receive the principles. I do not think if I had not gone through the ordeal I did, I would have ever gone off that night to meet him. But that was the only way it could be done then. Well, I was married then and there. Joseph went home his way and I went my way alone. A strange way, a strange of way of getting married, wasn't it? Brother Kimball married us on the 4th of March, 1843. And it's probably safe to say that Emma didn't know about many of these marriages we're talking about. So Joseph is doing this before for, for many of these marriages, we've already covered this. He's doing it before DNC 132 is actually revealed. Yeah. Um, you know, before he's even gotten the polygamy revelation and he's doing it um, without Emma's knowledge, lying to Emma, lying to the public. And in many yep. cases when he married, he's violating the, the rules of what would become DNC 132, you know, by doing things like marrying other people's wives. Uh, really quickly, Alicia, what what we should have had you read from now on, Mike. Let's That's have, true. Yeah, we should. Let's have Alicia read the women's accounts. But Alicia, what do you want to say as you contemplate uh, Emily Partridge's account? Well, I feel for Emily and Eliza, but in this case, I I just I think about Emma so much. I think about them in the house together in the mansion house. There's four girls living there at the time. You've got the Lawrence girls and the Partridge girls. And there's this period of time that Emma doesn't know that this is going on. This is behind her back. Um, and what we're going to talk about next is her eventually suggesting that those become his plural wives once she's convinced of it. I think after DNC 132 is re the revelation. Once the revelation is read to her by her. Um, I just think about what that dynamic must have been like for her. Can you imagine being the, the spouse in the house with these young girls? I mean, you've got to know that something is going on. Um, and yeah, it just makes me really emotional to read and to think about Emma and just, this is, it's horrific. 
It's absolutely horrific. I think Emily was 16 when she was first proposed to. Um, so she was a little older when it actually happened, but I just can't imagine what this must have been like for Emma. That's another, that's another good point. Like why wasn't Joseph, if he, if he had to practice polygamy and didn't want to, why wasn't he just marrying all the widows who were like 40 and 50 and 60? Why was he picking 16 year olds, 17 year olds? Like that's a, that's a tell. I mean, there were some, but the majority were, were young and hot, I think is, is right. from his perspective. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're younger and, and um, yeah. And the, the one that sticks, you know, stands out to me is that her, in her own account, she's saying that she's trying to get away until uh, he overtake almost overtakes her. And then she stops and you're just like, that, that is feels such, yeah. it feels so bad. Like he basically drags her back in the house because she doesn't want to do it. And so, of it's course, like he you, lunges. It's like he's lunging for her. Yeah, he, he probably is jogging. He's probably jogging out of the house trying to get her attention, knowing that she's trying to ignore him and, you know, almost overtakes her. And then she goes back in. And it's just one of those things where it's like, this is over and over again. We see these accounts where the women like, I didn't want to do it, but then I did it because I believed I had to because God wants me to. And it's, it's you know, and they believe God wants them to because Joseph Smith, they revere him as a prophet. And it just shows how um, our faith in, in leaders uh, can lead us to do bad things. And, and you see that today. You see it where people believe Russell Nelson is a prophet of God and they will do anything that Russell Nelson says. And, um, you know. And what's with this quote, I cannot tell you all Joseph said? Like, what else did he say? Like, you know. Yeah. Like, yeah. that could be a lot of things. But why, wh what's worse? What's worse than he's going to marry a 16 or 17-year-old who lives in his house whose dad died? Yeah. Like, what would be worse that she couldn't say? Yeah. That's right? a good question. <laughs> yeah. If she's telling you. us the stuff she can say yeah. and it's horrific, then what's the stuff she can say? I, I, yeah. I, it's a, no, it's a good point. It is. <laughs> okay. All right. So let's talk about Eliza, the sister, yep. right? The sister now. So um, I'll just kind of start off by saying, um, you know, I, I kept their, their proposal separate because, you know, Joseph kept their proposal separate as well. And so, um, Eliza was married to Joseph Smith around the same time. Um, she didn't write as much, unfortunately, so we don't have as much. So here's Eliza's account. And Alicia, if you want to read that, that would actually be pretty yeah. good. Oh, sure. Here, let me just expand it so I can see it. After a time, that paragraph, after yeah. a time, my sister Emily and myself went to live in the family of the prophet Joseph Smith. We lived there for about three years. While there, he taught us the plan of celestial marriage and asked us to enter into that order with him. This was truly a great trial for me, but I had the most implicit confidence in him as a prophet of the Lord and not but believe his word and as a matter of course, accept of privilege of being sealed to him as a wife for time and all eternity. We were sealed in 1843 by Heber C. Kimball in the presence of witnesses I continue to live in the family for a length of time after this. Okay. Thank you, Alicia. Mike. Yeah. And so it's just to point out that, you know, her entire testimony of polygamy was based on her believing Joseph Smith was a prophet of God. And I'm trying to highlight that a lot because it shows that Joseph Smith knew how much his followers revered him. And he was able to use that to circumvent these women's moral compass so that they would marry him um, in both polyandrous and polygamous marriages um, in a situation that went completely against what they wanted to do um in their own lives yeah at this point like we're halfway done with this presentation and i almost want to say 
Oh, we're not done with we're not done with Emily and Eliza yet. Yeah, but we're not I, quite. Just a couple more slides for them. You no, know, I just want to say already. I'm like, I think we've already shown that this is yeah. ridiculous, right? Like, yeah, it, we don't even need to continue. Cases shown, and we're not even done with Emily and Eliza, and we still have another yeah. hour and a half of a podcast to go. But yeah, but, but let's let's keep going. So let's go to um, Emily and Eliza's secret marriage to Joseph Smith. Yeah, and so this is one of those things that, you know, is just so crazy to me that they were both married to Joseph, but they didn't know that they were both married to him at first. So Emily Partridge later remarked that neither of us knew about the other at the time. Everything was so secret. And so this is just crazy. They're living in the Smith household and they are living there together, you know, in, in, in going through such a horrific time. And they have no idea that they're both married to Joseph Smith and they both think that they are um, this this is going to sound horrible, but Joseph Smith kind of tells all these women, like, you were given to me by God. So it gives you that sense of being in a special club and an elite status. And then all of a sudden, you don't realize that you're both having sex with the same man in the same household when his wife is unaware of what's going on. And um, this is going to lead to one of the more insane stories of polygamy, which is that Emma Smith is going to, for this very brief time, tell Joseph, you can enter into polygamy, but I get to choose the women. And she chooses the Partridge sisters and the Lawrence sisters who are married, uh, I'm sorry, who are living with the Smith household, but she has no idea that, that he's already married to, to them. And so um, it just shows like Emma's choice makes sense because they live in the household. She can keep an eye on them. She doesn't know that he's already married and having sex with them, which is just, it's just like, this is the kind of stuff you couldn't like write in a script if you were trying to be creative because it's so insane. Wow. Alicia, I'm going to let you respond and then I'm, I, I may want to respond. Yeah. One thing that just really stood out to me here is that Emily really viewed herself as having already been given to Joseph Smith by God. Um, and I think that's a really important point here to make that these girls are just so indoctrinated. They don't even view their lives as their own. And John, when you were talking about consent, I don't think that consent was even within their realm of entitlement. Like, I don't think that they had any degree of entitlement to, to consent to anything. You know, they really believe that this is God's prophet. And, um, I wish I had the exact phrasing, but Emily believed that she had already been given to Joseph Smith, uh, by God. And I just think of, I don't know, just the, the way that they, these girls are just like viewed as property and they view themselves as property. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's it's um you know you you mentioned earlier how sometimes you go through the temple and and you kind of see some of the same similarities here about how you go along with things you know are just crazy, and you know it, it reminded me of when I went through the temple and I don't want to get into specifics we've been trying not to do that but there's a part in the temple where you basically promise yourself everything you have to the church you don't promise it to yeah. God you Love, promise all consecration right yeah so you you promise to give your life and everything to the, not to God to the church. And so this is an instance where this is being utilized by Joseph Smith because he's saying you belong to God through me because I speak for him and it just shows how like you said when you have people that are that devout you can get them to do things that they would never do otherwise because they don't even understand how they like they don't have Google they can't hop online and see what Joseph Smith is doing they can't see that Joseph Smith has gotten the book of mormon wrong that he made up the priesthood restoration. They can't see all that stuff. So they're going along with it because they truly are so engrossed in this idea as a prophet. And it just shows how, how horribly abused it can be. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you, you, you hear in Mormonism, the saying, and it's probably in Christianity and in biblical Christianity, you know, God's saying my house is a house of order. 
right? I am not the God of confusion. Like this scenario where Joseph is married to Emma, but is practicing polygamy, but lying about it to Emma, but then marrying two sisters who are foster children, who are living in his home, who are teenage girls, then neither of them know about each other, and Emma doesn't know about them, but then Emma finally is okay with polygamy, and and so when she chooses one or both of the sisters to be married to Joseph, Joseph doesn't admit to Emma that he's already married to them, but then, but then he, as we're going to see in the next slide, performs a sham marriage to fool Emma um, and to make the, the, the sisters liars, like compelling them to be deceptive, all in the name of God. That's, you know, I'll make a boomer reference. That's more Keystone Cops. That's ridiculousness. That's not a house of order. And no. what God, what God would, would sanction that sort of behavior. And let's just go ahead and go to that slide to to kind of drive it home. Yeah, and so this is just this is one of those when I heard this when I first started doing the the deep dive and this stuff, I just I like you can't believe this. It seems so insane that you can't believe, it, but it's in rough stone rolling. It's not. This is this is very historical. So, um, because Joseph couldn't tell his beloved Emma that he was already married to and having sex with these teenage sisters, um, he staged a second mock wedding to keep the secret from his beloved Emma. And I'm putting beloved in there because that's how the, the gospel topics essay refers to her to try to, again, soften what was happening that Joseph was doing to her. Um, on May 11th, 1843, this is before DNC 132 was written, um, Joseph is going to be sealed to them for a second time. Um, however, their previously great relationship with Emma turned sour almost immediately after the mock wedding. Emma forced Joseph to kick the girls out of the house with Joseph Smith telling the girls, my hands are tied. Uh, the Partridge sisters left to live with another polygamous wife um, and Emma's brief time in accepting polygamy came to an end. Um, that's actually what's going to lead to Joseph needing to write DNC 132 because now he's like, I need to basically threaten Emma before, she, you know, I mean, and I'm, I'm putting a little bit of words into, into there, but um, the marriages to the Partridge sisters um, really hits on all the issues we've talked about, as, as you mentioned, John. Um, and this is a great write-up uh, on polygamy. It's from a um, letter from a doubter, and I should give you the link. It's a really good read. And um, in their polygamy section, it says, besides the heavy-handed pressure applied to Emily and Eliza, there's a disturbing amount of deceit going on. Joseph asking her to burn a letter and not talk to her family, Elizabeth Durfee testing the waters with Emily under the pretext that she's heard rumors, Joseph concealing the marriage of the sisters from their families and from each other, keeping it a secret from Emma, then putting on a mock wedding rather than telling her the, the truth. In fact, secrecy and deceit is a recurring problem with polygamy, as we're about to see. And then um, their letter goes into more of these accounts as well. Okay, that reference letter, I'm seeing, I'm trying to Google it. I'm seeing letter to a doubter, letter from a doubter. If you yeah, can... the, I'll, I'll get it for you. Okay. It's Alicia, a really good read. What, what yeah. do you want to say about the sham marriage? I just want to say about all of this, this was until roughly what 2008 considered anti-Mormon literature. Like anyone who talked about this stuff, if it came from Fawn Brody, anti-Mormon literature, you know, it wasn't really until the Joseph Smith papers. I mean, I could be wrong on this. You guys please chime in here, but until about 2008, people just, 
dismissed this stuff. They just viewed it as anti, you know? And so I think it's really great here to just point out that this can be found in faithful sources. This story that we just talked about, like mind blowing story, this is, um, you know, it's a historical event and it can be found even in church sources. So I don't know if we want to mention any of those. Like, I think for sure we've already mentioned Todd Compton. We've already mentioned, um, what else? Uh, I mean, Lindsay. It'll, it'll, be, in rough, it'll, be, in rough, it'll Sorry, be in rough stone rolling. It'll be in rough stone rolling. Oh, that's right. Rough stone rolling. And then what about the saints? I haven't read the saints volume one, volume two, but I, but I think that it references some of this stuff for any faithful listeners um, that yeah. want to just look at only faithful sources. I think it's just a, a good point to make that this isn't um, a lot of the faithful members that we know who are um, who who are really kind of more nuanced in these ideas will say like this isn't anti-Mormon literature. It's really important for active members to understand that this isn't anti. It's not, they're not lies. You know, it's it's in there. So I think it's yeah, good. This is uncontested and acknowledged by the church, its historical department, and its most faithful, credible historians. Yeah. Undisputed. The sham marriage of the Partridge sisters is fact. Yeah. It's this as isn't, much fact yeah. as is any part of Mormon church history. And you can and you can put on what you can view this from a faithful perspective. There are members of the church that view this with a faithful perspective. Uh, you know, and we're just all here having this conversation with we've all got our own our own interpretation of these events, you know. I have deconstructed because of reading this stuff, but not everyone does. Some people continue faithful even after reading it. So Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yep. Yeah, I would just I would just add to that last slide, which I find I mean, we've we've we're beating a dead horse to a point on this, but Emma Smith is living in a household with the Partridge sisters, doesn't know they're married to Joseph. Then she agrees to this marriage. She kicks him out because of course Joseph's having sex with these women. And then Joseph has, has to write DNC 132. All during all this time, God doesn't send an angel to her to be like, This is what I need you to do. It's just interesting. It's very convenient that. Emma has to go through all this without any spiritual confirmation. The church doesn't really point you that way because, of course, they want you to focus on uh, these women who are like, yeah, I really didn't want to do it. I really didn't want to do it. But he was a prophet of God, so I had a confirmation. It's just it's it's just very convenient. All of this stuff is very convenient to Joseph, and um, God seems to only do whatever is in Joseph's interest. And, and I find that to be very um, interesting as a theme throughout all the episodes, not just polygamy. Yeah. All right. Well, and we're, all, we're we're about two hours in and we're only halfway done with just the polygamy proposal. So I want to yeah. reference again, ldsdiscussions.com slash polygamy dash proposals. That's Mike's amazing website at LDS Discussions where you can read about this and hopefully find a lot of the sources. If you want to view or listen or refer someone to these episodes in their sequence um you can you can go to spotify and find the lds discussions uh podcast you can listen to or view them there for free you can also go to the youtube uh playlist under mormon stories podcast and have uh videos of this in succession um and uh yeah that's part one and i guess next week we're going to come back with part two where we're going to talk about uh other examples of I mean, I think we've made the point. So a part of me wants to say part two isn't necessary. But yeah. Mike, Alicia, give us the case for why we need a, a second part. I'll let you go first, Alicia, if you want. 
I got to look at my notes. (laughs) Well, in the next part, we're going to go into, you know, the Lawrence sisters. There's some interesting points there about the estate that Joseph Smith comes into and ultimately takes control over. Oh, we're going to talk about Helen Mark Kimball. We can't have a series on the proposals without talking about Helen Mark Kimball. It's the most recognizable name in um, Mormon history polygamy um, because she was only 14 years old. So there's so many more things that are important to cover, I think, to really make our make our point. Yeah. And, and uh, with Helen Mark Kimball, um, Alicia, I don't mean to be rude, but I have to correct you. She wasn't for, <laughs> she wasn't 14. She was several months before her 15th birthday. No, it's several months shy of her shy. 15th birthday. I, I think the word they use is before, but I could be wrong either way. Um, and, and, and the reason I think Helen Mars story is actually amazing too, is because of the way the church portrays Heber's, um, introduction to polygamy. And so when we go over that, that is one of the most crazy stories that the church essay promotes as faith promoting that when you actually know what the context is, it is like, it'll blow your mind. So I'll give you that as a tease. Cause I, I, when I heard that, um, the first time of why, um, he cried tears of joy. Um, yeah, it, it, you, I, I remember I was working and I had my headphones on and I was working on some stuff. And I just was like, I think like an audible gasp, like, oh, you got to be kidding me. Like, this is insane. So, yeah, as Alicia said, Helen Mark Kimball, you have to talk about. Um, and I think Heber C. Kimball, we have to talk about. And then um, when we finish looking at the implications of what this means um, for how we view this, how we try to reconcile this with DNC 132. So I think there's a lot to cover. Um, so the next episode will be good because we won't have to pile it all into like a three and a half hour episode. So thanks to everyone who's who's uh, being patient with us and, and letting us get through all this stuff in, in the detail we have. Well, thank you, Mike. You've done really, really important work. And Alicia, this is so much better with having you here. I hope you'll yes, come back. Yes, it is. Again. Yeah, we'll make you, we're going to make you come back. So you have no choice. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Thanks, guys. I love this topic. And Mike, thank you so much for all the work that you've done on these slides. I just He sends them to me and I just write my notes. But this is you've done so much work. And I really feel like this is so impactful for so many people. I get messages every day about how deconstructing has really benefited people and is really changing people's lives for the better. So I know there's a lot of um, critique on this space on making forcing people to deconstruct and how that can be harmful. But you know what? I think that it's, I think it's an overall good. I think it's a net positive. I think people are really, really benefiting from this work that you're doing. And John, of course, you were a lifeline for me when I had my deconstruction. So I just appreciate you both so much. Well, and and I will say before we go, um, Alicia was like the first person I thought of when I was trying to think of someone to come on because her approach to all of this um, in her videos and stuff that she's done on TikTok are so just kind and comforting and they're not mocking anyone. They're not making fun of it. And so I just love your approach. And so you're the perfect person to have. So I'm so glad you're, we're willing to take the time and hopefully we can at least get one more with you. And, and um, just thank you so much. Thank you. And Alicia's TikTok is um, faith and Un- faith unraveled, right? Yep. Faith unraveled. Faith and unraveled. I'm going to be talking a lot more about polygamy. I just love this topic. It's very personal to me. So yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Mike. Thanks, Alicia. And most Thank importantly, you. thanks to everyone for joining us today on Mormon Stories Podcast. We couldn't do this without your support. So for everyone who makes this possible, including donors, including our board of directors, Clint Martin and Carrie Whitbeck, including Gerardo, and uh, Maven's been helping out a little bit, and, and Brooklyn, and and uh, Julia, who's helping out with TikTok, just to, to everyone who's making and Margie, who's been my co-host, and, and Samantha and Karen, John Larson, just for all the people that make the Open Stories Foundation and 
Mormon stories possible. I want to thank them. I want to thank donors that make this possible. Also want to say that if any of you, you know, we just bought Mike, we just upgraded a bunch of his equipment, spent a couple grand. Uh, like uh, we hope to tweak his audio so that it just gets better and better. Um, you know, all this stuff uh, costs money. So if you are able to become a monthly donor, we lose donors every month. So if you're able to become a monthly donor, you can go to mormonstories.org, click on the donate button, uh, become a monthly donor. Our, your donations are tax deductible in the U.S. We're transparent in our finances and every dollar we spend hopefully goes towards the mission. We believe goes towards the mission of uh, informed consent for Mormons and questioning Mormons and non-Mormons but also to support Mormons who are having a faith transition and to support people who are rebuilding their lives after Mormon orthodoxy or after leaving the church. So, and of course, helping people find community and friends and support during difficult times. So please support us if you can. You can also support us by subscribing like on YouTube where we're getting around 2000 subscribers per month. If we can keep that pace within maybe a year and a half to two years, we'll have a hundred thousand subscribers on YouTube, which we think is a, is a really, um, really validating uh, accomplishment to help us know that we're reaching people. We now know that over half of our viewing audience on YouTube has never been Mormon. So we're reaching people of other religious traditions as well. So please become, please click the subscribe button, not just on YouTube, but on Facebook, on Instagram, uh, and on TikTok. Um, and uh, that will help with all of the algorithms and everything else. So, and share these episodes with anyone that you can spread the word and give us your feedback. Feel free to comment on any of these episodes, Mike and I, and I'm sure Alicia will, will look at every, every comment. We'll try and tweak and make things better to accommodate, uh, or to respond to your feedback. Um, and of course you can always email us at mormonstories at gmail.com. And Mike, I think you have a, a email as well. If people want to email you directly, is that right, Mike? Yeah. You can always email us LDS discussion with no S at gmail.com. If you want to reach out, um, and I'm on Instagram at LDS discussions, that's another place or, um, you know, either way you can get it. Is there an email you want to give people? Oh, maybe not oh, yet. <laughs> okay. DM, DM her at what? At TikTok? Faith Unravel at TikTok? No, no DMs? No DMs. You know what? You can go to my TikTok and tag me. And I always look at my tags. Okay. Faith Unraveled. I have a question. Follow me back. Okay. We're we're getting there. We're going to expand eventually to Instagram. I didn't want to get excommunicated. I'm sure it's too late for that now, but. (laughs) You're too awesome to be excommunicated. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks again, everybody. Thanks for this episode. And uh, check us out next week or next episode for part two of our episode on Joseph Smith's plural marriage proposals and know that we've got uh, at least a few, at least two dozen episodes remaining after we're done with the polygamy series, which will now be a six parter. We're still going to cover book of Abraham. We're going to cover Kinderhook plates, Joseph Smith's translations, uh, the the witnesses to the book of Mormon and other scripture, um, how the church handles doubt. We're going to talk about Joseph Smith's revelations, the transfiguration of Brigham Young apologetics so much more on this series with LDS discussions. So please join us in the days, weeks, months, and years ahead. Uh, we love you all. Be kind to each other. Be good to each other. And we'll see you all again soon on another episode of Mormon Stories Podcast. Uh, take care, everybody. <laughs>